This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Transformation Ground Control, the podcast for all things digital transformation, the people, process, technology, and strategy side of transformation. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, thanks for being on the show again today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. We've got an exciting show for you today. Uh, This is episode number 39. Uh, We're going to start off with some rapid fire overview of uh, news, digital transformation news, and uh, some trends and articles that you've seen in recent uh, days since our last episode. So we'll, we'll cover that in our first segment. Our second segment uh, of the show, we're going to have uh, Megan Bowman and she's going to, and she's from a company called Stopwatch and she's with one of her colleagues, uh, James, who's going to be on the show as well. So we'll have actually two guests on that second segment from a company called Stopwatch. And they are a provider of uh, what I would call an alternate alternative or niche uh, technology solution, enterprise technology solution that's meant to be uh, sort of a augmentation to ERP systems. And what I want to, the reason I want to have them on the show is we're going to talk about some of the limitations of ERP and how you can address some of those limitations in general. And we'll obviously talk about their product and what their product does, but it's a good case study or a good use case of how you can plug some of those gaps and fill in some of the voids and deficiencies and weaknesses of ERP, traditional ERP systems, I should say. So we'll have a good conversation with them here later today. And then finally, in the third segment, um, I had a chance to interview uh, Stuart Robb from our team. Uh, he's actually the vice president of our UK office in uh, London. And Stuart and I are going to talk about private equity and digital transformation and private equity. So we're going to cover that uh, later in today's show. And, and uh, the reason that segment is going to be important, even if you're not part of a private equity firm or a private equity owned firm, there's some really good lessons from PE-owned firms in the way they approach digital transformation that I think is very applicable to uh, most, if not all, organizations going through transformation. So stay tuned for that. But before we get to our guests here today, uh, let's start with uh, some of the, the news and trends you're seeing in the space. What, what have you got for us today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I wanted to start with the U.S. Army um, that is going through a huge overhaul of all of their digital strategies and systems. So what's happening with the Army, just as a a quick uh, overview, is basically they've gone from transforming not only their systems, but also kind of the threats and risks that they have to their overall quote-unquote business. Um, It used to be more perimeter-based, and now it's more application-based, specifically when it comes to cybersecurity. So in knowing um, that they're going through this huge transformation with their technologies, Eric, I wanted to kind of ask you about what that looks like from more of a a technical side. So basically, they're taking three pillars of changing their business. They're taking the culture side, they're taking the technology side, and then they're taking the actual um, 
adoption side. So making sure that all of the, their soldiers and teams are utilizing the systems. So when they talk about cybersecurity, because that's obviously a main threat to them, they talk about, again, how it's gone from, they used to be able to source the threats through one system. And now that they have a bunch of bolt on type of different systems for the different um, processes that they need to be able to go through, how does that affect cybersecurity, knowing that they're kind of going to an application-based um, process or strategy to oversee those threats? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting point because uh, that's something we've seen and talked about in past episodes on this show where uh, with this whole bring your own, or not bring your own device, but basically work from home with a device that's accessing, uh, you know, an uh, internal corporate network, that's exposed a lot of, uh, that's, that's created a lot of new openings for cybersecurity threats. And so, you know, what you're saying with this multiple application scenario, you know, what does that do from a, from an app or a cybersecurity perspective? And I think it does expose or increase the risk of threat just because you've created more potential loopholes, uh, not just in terms of more applications that outside hackers could try to tap into, but also now you've got more people touching more systems, which anytime your internal employees are touching a system, there's, there's security threats there. And it's not just the, the, the bad stuff, call it, where it's uh, the nefarious criminal type uh, cybersecurity issues. A lot of times it's just innocent mistakes. Um, you know, security profiles aren't set up right or, you know, people have access to things they, they shouldn't have access to. So now you've just sort of multiplied the, the potential risks there. So I think it's, uh, that's, a, that's a good point. Uh, it's something a lot of especially larger organizations that are in a best of breed environment where they're not relying just on one system or just a small group of systems. They've got multiple systems. That is, that is something to be mindful of for sure. Definitely. And from that approach, I think that there's a layer of organizational change. The way they were kind of talking about it, I thought was super interesting because they had said kind of their process was every commander, every general kind of did their own thing to oversee whatever department or mission or that type of, of situation within their community. And now they're trying to kind of create a streamlined system, policies to kind of get over that cowboy type of culture that they have had some bad PR for. So would that be something that would be kind of similar to maybe a global organization that has kind of many subcultures within their overall conglomerate of a company? Yeah, in fact, that's something we'll, we'll uh, touch on with Stuart uh, later in the show when we talk about the private equity uh, scenarios or the private equity digital transformations. Those are typically, you know, more mid-sized companies, much different than the U.S. Army or any, you know, large government entity, but the, the growth that they're going through and, and some of the uh, challenges they're facing from a cultural change perspective are similar to what, what larger organizations face, especially when those larger organizations have grown through acquisition. Um, I know that's not necessarily the case with the U.S. Army, but for private sector companies or just any organization that has gone out and acquired companies or to, your, to use your words or the way you describe it, the, the subcultures, you have multiple subcultures, and now you're trying to transition to a more common culture or just a different way of operating that just is going to create organizational pain even if people on the surface say they're comfortable with it and are on board with it excited about it usually there's still a lot more pushback there than people 
realize, you know, whenever you talk about completely changing the, the fundamental culture of an organization. Definitely. I, I feel like that's almost on steroids with a, a, an institution that, you know, you could argue has had kind of this masculinity in its, its overall dynamic, um, not only from a cultural standpoint, but also from, if you think about it, technology standpoint, you know, it's, it's morphed from, you know, man to man, if you will, or woman to woman combat to actually more of a threat on the technology side and that connectivity. Um, So I think it's just, it's really interesting to kind of compare something like that. I wanted to ask you kind of honestly, do you feel like an organization that uh, that type of culture is so embedded and has been almost kind of tribal and traditional through so many years, is it possible to change a culture like that? And if so, how do you go about doing that, knowing that you have, you know, enlistees and front lines and all kinds of different um, types of of stakeholders involved in that company culture? Yeah, it's to short answer your question is yes, you can uh, change a culture like that, but it it won't happen overnight, especially when you're talking about a government organization that you know historically and stereotypically has been slow to change slower than a comparable private sector company that might be the same size or, you know, comparable size. So, you know, but it, you know, whatever, any, any organization has reasons why they, you know, might not want to change as quickly as, as others. Um, so it's a, it's a challenge no matter what kind of organization you are. But um, I think that the key here is to, to make sure that you recognize all the things that affect culture. It's not something that just happens in in some cases, it may have just happened because there wasn't a deliberate focus on it. But when if if you want your culture to change away from a gunslinging old boys network, whatever you want to call it, to more of a you know a different type of culture, that's not just going to happen because you will it or because you you sheer force to say we're just going to do this and this is what we're going to be. That's just barely scratching the surface if, if even doing that. So what you have to do is uh, it actually reminds me of a video um, I put out several months ago, maybe even over a year ago on my YouTube channel that talks about uh, the McKinsey 7S model. And it's, uh, I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's something I, I studied in um, in grad school and business school. And it's a, it's a really useful model. It's not rocket science. It's not super complex, but basically there's seven S's and it's, I forgot what they all are, but it's like strategy, um, shared values, um, systems, a bunch of, you know, whatever the other, I don't remember the other four, but in the video, I talk about all seven of them. But the point is, is that, you know, when you think about culture, you have to look at what all the different dimensions are that are interwoven with culture. So that's where you have to think, okay, I want the culture to be this. So the first step is to articulate what is that culture going to be or what do you want it to be? And then you start to figure out what are all the things that contribute to the culture. And it's the types of people we hire, it's the way we develop them. It's the compensation systems, the reward systems. It's the, you know, the organizational structure. It's, uh, there's a lot of different things. It's even our business processes and our systems can affect our, our culture. So we have to think a bit of it very holistically in terms of looking at all the different aspects of it and then putting together as part of an overall change plan, what, is, what are the dimensions of culture and how do we want to drive some of that change? And then we also have to recognize it's not going to happen you know, in the course of a, you know, a quick ERP implementation or a quick systems implementation, although the U.S. Army would 
probably take decades to implement any meaningful systems across the, the enterprise, but even for a, a mid-size or larger organization that let's just say you have a two or three year horizon to implement new technology or go through a digital transformation, even in that period, you're just going to move the needle on culture. You're not going to change it, you know, change it overnight, but you can start getting the the needle moving in that direction. And, and that's the key is really to be deliberate about it, define what, first of all, define and articulate what you want the culture to be, be deliberate about how you're going to move from point A to that future state, and then make sure that everything else is aligned and that you're doing other things that reinforce and building and bending that culture. And you also want to make sure you don't break it because some organizations think that, you know, we can just go from gunslinging entrepreneurial mentality to total mature, standardized, you know, cookie cutter, common operating model type of type of environment. And that's, it's just not realistic. You know, I, I don't know of an organization that has done that in any short period of time. So um, a journey like that is going to take a long time. It's going to take a lot longer than it's going to take to implement new technology and even business processes for sure. Yeah. And I assume that executive alignment is huge when we talk about creating a culture change. And I wondered in this example specifically, where we're talking about a lot of times, at least in my experience, when a culture does change, we bring in a new CIO or a new, you know, executive on that side that says like, hey, you know, this is, you know, how we're going to change our culture. And on on the the status of the army, obviously, you're not going to bring in like a new admiral or a new general, right? They've worked their way up through, through the ranks. So it, is that leadership in dedicating the change to culture still as pivotal in that import in that situation or example. Yeah. Yeah. Your new leadership should, for, should definitely align with and reinforce and help direct or, or help build that culture. Right. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, more to come on this. I know um, we've done a variety of videos or content pieces on the U S military because it, it is a very interesting um, digital transformation, especially when it comes to new systems. But I wanted to kind of transition to uh, another piece I found that talked about leveraging OCM or organizational change management when it came to IT staff or workforce adoption. And it this piece specifically gave a really interesting example. It said, you know, you you have an IT team that might operate like you think they operate within the walls of an office, but think about it as a business, for example, that has uh, a thousand chain restaurants. And there's not obviously an IT person on each one of those restaurants to make sure that people that might not be, or that workforce that might not be as IT savvy or technical savvy, um, you know, processing orders, those types of things. Um, and I wondered if you had an example or had experience with with um, influencing that type of mass volume adoption and utilizing OCM to do so. Yeah, you know, the more dispersed you are geographically and uh, business unit wise, the, the more difficult it is. Um, yes, I, I have had that experience. A lot of how you go about it, though, depends on what it is, you know, back to the previous point about culture and you know, changing your culture, a lot of it depends on what your future state is and how big of a change are you making and how, you know, how much is there to adopt or how much transition is this really going to entail? For some organizations we work with, they're making massive changes either out of necessity because the the market or the economy is forcing them to change quickly, or they're just being more strategic or just trying to be more aggressive with their, their magnitude of change. 
other organizations might be more risk adverse. They might be, um, they may not be have any burning platform to make a huge change, but they may want to make some incremental changes. So that those change strategies and uh, levels of workforce adoption are going to be going to be quite a bit different. But either way, I think you just you want to recognize there isn't a one size fits all answer. I mean, depending on what, if I give you two extremes of one company that's just going through some incremental changes and the other one that's going through a massive digital and business transformation overhaul. Uh, most companies are somewhere in between on a continuum, but you have to sort of define that change in workforce adoption strategy in terms of, you know, how big the change is and what exactly, what exactly the changes are in each, each work group within a business or an organization are going to be affected differently. So you, you really need to define how each different work group, whether it's by department or work group or location or all the above, you just want to define what the, what the gaps are and, and how do we transition each of those groups and each one's going to have its own little micro strategy that you use to be prescriptive about how you address that specific gap in the change. Yeah. And then I assume organizational design and infrastructure is really important in that type of situation because you might have a stakeholder or an expectation setter that is maybe a, a fast food chain manager, right? And their job is to make sure that all of their employees are effectively leveraging the new technology, those types of things. And so would that go in the pre-planning process before we even you know, talk about implementing, we already need to kind of go through those strategies and align on the plan beforehand? I, I think you do. I mean, a lot of companies don't do it that way, which is how they end up taking longer and spending more money and just going through more turmoil than they need to. Um, it's unfortunate, but most, I'd say most organizations, that's not their instinct is to, is to even think about that, let alone think about that early on in a project. So that, that organ design piece is definitely important, especially if you're, if you're an organization that a larger organization, let's just say that has grown through acquisition and you've consolidated a bunch of functions and businesses into the overall operation, um, you're going to want to spend more time than most on that upfront org design piece. Cause, uh, you may be moving to like a a shared services model where instead of having multiple HR or accounting or finance um, or procurement departments, you know, from all these different companies that you've acquired or all these different locations, if you've grown organically, um, you may, you may find that, you know, that's a big change and we have to define what's that going to look like because that's ultimately going to affect how you deploy technology and new business processes too. If we don't do that, what ends up happening inevitably in most cases, overwhelming majority of cases is we just, we, we, let's say we ignore the org design piece, then we go deploy technology to automate the way things are today. And we never get to that point of saying, let's move to that shared service model. So it's almost like ripping the bandaid off. It's like, if you're going to deploy technology, you're going to go through this transformation, get it right. Don't drag it out and, you know, just add, punt it to some point in the future. Cause you're just going to end up frustrating the organization. You're going to end up losing a lot of business value. Uh, there's a high likelihood you'll never get to it because people's tolerance for the project or the transformation continuing indefinitely is going to, you know, at some point people are going to check out or pull the plug on the project. So for all those reasons, that's a reason why you want to do that up front. If, if you're serious about getting business value out of the investment, if you're serious about transforming your business, then that's what you do. If, if not, then, you know, if it's just a more incremental change and you're just looking for these little baby steps, which is okay too, then it's not as important to do that stuff up front. But you still need to, need to in some capacity. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think understanding 
how that affects that IT change or that digital transformation or new technology affects every key piece of your business. For example, I at an organization I was at before I had the privilege of being with Third Stage is um, I was in charge of a national retail organization that had over 2000 stores within my sales channel and we changed POSs. And it was amazing to me how the executives that kind of flipped that switch, made that change, had no idea kind of what the frontline employee that actually had to activate that technology went through. So I, I think, you know, what you said is just so important to understand each key element that will affect that change and make sure they understand and are optimized for success um, type of thing within that plan. Um, so a really interesting topic that definitely resonates with my experience too, um, which was cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then cool. something else that I had found was, uh, it was an opt-ed piece actually um, by an entrepreneur that talked about how spending on digital transformation actually saves you money in the end. Um, so I wanted to get your your take on that, specifically being an entrepreneur yourself, right? You've started a variety of businesses. So would you say that spending on a digital transformation would be a main tactic to future planning for budget savings? It can, uh, but it is just as likely and it might even be more likely, I think it is more likely to become a money pit if you don't manage it right. So I think a, a blanket statement saying that you know, if you invest in digital transformation, you're going to, you're going to save money in the long term. Maybe, I don't know. It, it depends on how you run it, but yeah. I, we see a lot of companies that just spend way too much time and money on that investment. So instead of spending say a million us dollars, they spend 3 million us dollars. Well, that's a, that's a, those are two very different cost benefit analysis scenarios, especially if you're banking on getting benefits out of that million dollar investment. Now you've spent three and then most organizations on the flip side, on the benefit side, don't get they, they do things ineffectively to not get the value out of the system, which further complicates that equation. So I'd say, yes, the potential is definitely there. And I think that's what people get sold on. And it's that sort of aspirational dream, but not enough companies understand what it takes to get to that state of utopia, if you will. Uh, but it, it is a real attainable thing. We do see organizations do it. And a lot of our clients get through it. Most of our clients get to that point. But um, it's not a surefire thing. And I, I would definitely shy away from the idea that if I just go buy technology and deploy it, I'm going to save money because that may not be true. You also have to be realistic about where you're going to save money because a lot of times it's uh, these business cases end up becoming sort of smoke and mirrors, especially, for example, when you look at cloud systems. I've, I am I'm baffled by how many organizations think they're going to save a lot of money by deploying cloud technology. The reality is, in many cases, organizations are actually spending more on cloud technology because it's a subscription annual repeating cost that actually escalates over time as you grow and as you hit you know certain kickers in your contracts those costs actually creep up over time um, my hypothesis is that in a few years from now maybe two three or five years from now there's going to be a day of reckoning for cloud where companies say we are done spending all this money on these cloud solutions that aren't delivering value and they're going to want to rip them out so that's more of a you know a prediction for what i think where i think we're headed um, so you want to be real deliberate about where you deploy cloud technology and be realistic about the fact that you're probably going to spend more on the cloud applications themselves, um, even if you factor in the fact that you don't have as much infrastructure or the servers or whatever. Um, 
you, you just want to be deliberate about it. Now, it could be that, that that increased cost structure, back to the point of investing in technology, uh, that increased cost structure might save you more money in other areas, you know, with other business benefits. But like I said, a lot of times companies are way, you know, overly optimistic about what those benefits are. So you just have to be realistic. If you have a realistic business case, it's a lot easier to make decisions that make sense versus the, the inflated business cases that, you know, software vendors and system integrators often put out there to clients. Yeah, definitely. That makes a lot of sense. And you always talk about the silver bullet scenario. And that's what I was thinking about when reading this, this piece is, you know, it, it really is unique to each company. And I'm curious, since a lot of third stage clients are entrepreneurs, small business owners, small to midsize, just because we are such a good culture match for people like that, because a, a lot of um, similar thinking when it comes to our brand. So when it when you're advising those organizations, do you tend to take a more cautious walk before you run type of approach when it comes to systems? Or does it a lot of times end up being that they do need an ERP to grow and scale any sort of success? It depends on the the uh, the the culture and the risk profile of the company. So if they uh, and, and also the, the maturity and the capabilities of the company too. So I'd say culture, risk tolerance, the capabilities that you have internally, all those things factor into uh, a, a what's it called a um, not a scenario but a profile of a company that that will tell you you know what sort of path makes the most sense for them if they're uh, you know really risk adverse organization you know let's just say they're a, a family owned business third generation family business um they don't have a big it staff or any it competencies they've never been through a project like this before you're probably going to you're probably going to recommend more of a walk before you run type of scenario um others are more aggressive they're high tech high growth companies they have a lot of internal competencies they have a high tolerance for risk they're willing to gamble um, in those cases, you might have more of a, an aggressive timeline, an aggressive transformation plan, and most organizations are, you know, somewhere somewhere in between. So I think that's the important part is making sure you have alignment with who you are. And it's it's one thing to say, well, we want to be more aggressive, but we want to be more risk uh, tolerant. Okay, but you're not. So you might change that in a few years, but where you're at right now, if you're starting today, that's where you are. That's who you are. So you have to sort of just be true to that and say, you know, we're not going to change that overnight either. We maybe want to aspire to something different and we might push the needle that way, but much like culture, you're just, you're not going to change that overnight. Yeah, definitely. I think we've been doing too many interviews because when I wrote that question, I was like, he's going to say it depends. <laughs> yes, that's a classic uh, consultant answer. Is it Always, depends. it depends. Well, good. Well, I'd love to round out kind of our um, news hour with um, telling you, you know, we got to always do a quiz, you know, to put you on the spot because that's just how I roll. So I'm going to give you the name of the article and you can give me um, some answers. So this recent article is called the top 10 digital transformation trends for 2022, a recent article from Forbes. And I'm hoping that you can name maybe five maybe six well that's a it's a steep climb <laughs> you could have you could have picked the one i wrote so i i know that i know i, I, I know <laughs> i compared it to yours so i think you i think you're gonna be i think you're gonna be just fine so without further right. ado what do you think well i'd say you know 
further cloud adoption. I mean, I don't know if they if that's sort of a given, but I, I do feel like that that's a, an area that is increasingly that's gaining a lot of momentum is just the movement to the cloud. Is that right. one of the yes? Is that on their list? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. So there's one. Um, I'd say uh, you know certainly machine learning and AI. Uh, being in robotic process automation, all that sort of uh, those efficiency gains and the uh, the the intelligence, the the intelligent automation of software. That's a, a movement I would expect to see there. Yep, yep, that's number two. So good job. All right, um, I'm not going to touch change management just because I feel like so many people just skip over that. It's not that I don't believe it. It's just I don't think uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think. Uh, Forbes or most in industry analysts are talking about that, but am I wrong on that? I'll... No, you are not wrong. That is not on the list. Okay, so that would be on mine, but it's not on theirs. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not. Let's see. Uh, I, I think um, consolidation in the in the space uh, in the in the technology space, with all the M and A activity happening right now, with the private equity money floating around and people just struggling to to grow. I think that's going to create a lot of consolidation where SAP and Oracle and some of these big vendors, I think, are going to go out and keep buying some of the smaller companies. Uh-huh. They call that as everything is serviced is how they labeled it, but along mm -hmm. the same lines. You're doing great. Okay. Um, and then, uh, boy. Oh, and then uh, cybersecurity. I mean, cybersecurity um, – is one and then what about supply chain do they talk about supply chain in there about they did not talk about supply chain which kind of was surprising um but yeah they talked a lot about um cybersecurity and also privacy was a, a mm -hmm. main um piece of that too just user privacy oh okay yeah those are those are good ones too ever since gdrp in europe and uh, that, that's become very top of mind for a lot of organizations for sure yeah and then one that uh they I don't know if I would call it a digital transformation trend, but they put that on the list and, and I wanted to kind of ask you about it. So it talks about um, big tech and staying in kind of the regulatory spotlight. Uh, and that's what they thought was going to be kind of the number one main trend when it came from digital transformation. So I'm curious about your reaction to that. Yeah, I think definitely on the consumer side, it, it's pretty obvious that's that's where where we're headed, especially after the, you know, the the stuff coming out with Facebook and um, the the whistleblower from Facebook. That's gonna, yeah, I think that's a that's a snow that's snowballing into that uh, likely scenario. I'm not sure. I'd, I'd be curious to see how that translates into enterprise technology, if at all. To be honest, I don't know. Um, I guess you know, from related to some of the other trends you talked about, cybersecurity, privacy. Yeah. I suppose that's where you might get more regulatory oversight and generally, not to get too political, but generally governments uh, go too far when they try to overcorrect things. So I, I could see them saying, okay, well, Facebook is now, but what about uh, SAP or Oracle? Let's go after those guys and make sure they're not you know, going to pull something similar at, at more of an enterprise level. So um, yeah, I could see that. I, I wouldn't have guessed that or I, that wouldn't have been top of mind for me, but I, I guess I could maybe see that happening. Well, you still got a gold star, so well done. On I got the, a certificate on, of participation. Yeah, uh, you did. A nice. participation ribbon that everybody got, so well nice. done. <laughs> that's, all, that's, all I was, that's all I was striving for. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Good. Well, I think with, with that kind of overview, it's a great time to kind of switch over and talk to our friends from um, Stonehenge Labs and Stopwatch. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I didn't mention that actually at the top of the hour, the, the, the actual company name. I, I said the company name was Stopwatch, but actually the company name is Stonehenge Labs. The product is called Stopwatch. And so we're going to have uh, Megan and James from Stonehenge slash Stopwatch on after a quick break here. They're going to be here to talk about alternative niche technologies that can augment a digital transformation or ERP implementation. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. This is the podcast for all things related to digital transformation, the people process, technology, and strategy side of change. And uh, what I'm excited for next is uh, our guest from Stonehenge Labs and Stopwatch is the product that they produce. Uh, We have Megan and James uh, on the show. And the reason we wanted to have these guys on the show is to talk about alternative and niche technologies that you might not be thinking about. Um, as it relates to your digital transformation. And I think a lot of times we, we see a lot of organizations that get myopically focused on ERP or CRM or human capital management, sort of that standard vanilla off-the-shelf uh, technology. And what we've talked about in this show and what we talk about with our clients all the time is that there are certain limitations and gaps in those types of solutions. And the real business value oftentimes comes from the little creases or the gaps in those systems. So the question is, well, what do you do? If our, if my ERP system or my CRM or HCM or supply chain system, if that isn't gonna be the one size fits all and all be all answer to my needs, then what else could I do? And so we thought it'd be good to have a guest on the show that could talk about you know, what are some examples and some use cases of how technology can be used creatively without having to necessarily customize or create custom developed software. I'm not suggesting that necessarily, although that could be a path you, you pursue. Um, you know, what are some of the other options? So that's why we want to have Megan and James on the show. So all that being said, uh, Megan and James, welcome to the show. So I guess to start, um, what, what is it that you both do and, and what does the company do in general? Why don't we, why don't we start there? And Megan, we'll start with you because I think we just lost James on, on the feed. Yeah, uh, thanks for having us, Eric. Um, when James pops in, he's actually the more interesting of the two of us, uh, believe it or not. Um, yeah, my, my name is Megan Bowman. I'm the founder and CEO of Stopwatch um, uh, and Stonehenge Technology Labs at a broader level. Oh, there's James. Yeah. <laughs> um, hey, James. Oh, you're muted. Anyway, um, and essentially, um, I kind of come from a background of a combination of uh, retail, uh, consumer packaged goods, um, data science, and startup. And so um, that's really kind of my role here at Stonehenge Technology Labs is to, um, I mean, frankly, uh, keep money in the bank, uh, recruit the best talent, get out of the way, and um, 
and make sure that you know we're we're we've got a company vision. So um, I'm definitely up a little bit um, out of the weeds. Uh, James actually runs all of our product, um, so I'll let him you know talk to talk to the product. Yeah, so I'm James Sampson, the director of product here at Stopwatch. So um, kind of from a background perspective, I uh, studied supply chain throughout school. Then I've worked uh, really in the ground levels of, of retail, as well as kind of really in the logistics space. Uh, and now kind of being here at Stopwatch, really into kind of the data and analytics and, and really just making it all work together spaces is what I would call it. Um, so really, yeah, definitely really excited to be here and, and, and have everybody and excited to really dive into everyone's questions and um, figure out what we have. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thanks for being here. Appreciate you both being here. Um, so I guess just to start, I'm going to, I want to dive into some more general uh, questions here in a second about, uh, you know, some of the limitations of ERP systems and some examples of what those limitations are and how different types of technology can fill some of those voids. But before I get to those general questions, um, why don't we start with um, the the product stopwatch? And that's the the product that you guys are working on, and that's the product that your your company uh, develops and implements and supports. What inspired you and the team to develop this product? And maybe just to give us a high level overview of what it does and why you know what is the problem statement of what you were trying to accomplish with that product? Yeah, no, Eric. So you know, you guys study a lot of of, of um, ERP implementations, which is a huge deal for any large company, right? Like it doesn't matter, um, you know, it's just, it's a, it's, it's ripe, it's ripe with opportunity um, for great communication, uh, great opportunities for failures, um, et cetera. Stopwatch um, actually is designed to um, essentially wrap around whatever ERP system um, has been implemented. Um, so whether it's SAP, Oracle, Microsoft Dynamics, um, anything like that. And we're specifically focused today on the consumer packaged goods industry. Why the consumer packaged goods industry? Well, because at Stonehenge Technology Labs, uh, we try to, our goal is to solve exceedingly complex problems with speed and simplicity. And the consumer packaged goods company is a total mess. Um, I'm sure a lot of industries you work with have are, are pretty messy. The interesting thing about things like chips, trash bags, and toothpaste is you've got this thing called the UPC, right? The Universal Process um, uh, Packaging Code. And the proliferation of that throughout all the different retailers and different selling channels um, is unique really to, um, to how Stopwatch was built. And so while Stonehenge Technology Labs, the software can actually, you know, go into manufacturing and, and education, et cetera. We started with Stopwatch, uh, started with consumer packaged goods companies simply because it was um, the messiest and most granular that we could find. Um, of course, if anybody has anything more messy or granular, please feel free to let us know and we'll feel a little bit better about ourselves. Um, but essentially what Stopwatch does is um, pulls information, uh, not only from the ERP system, but also from public and private data sources to service the, um, we'll use Coca-Cola, to service Coca-Cola directly and help Coca-Cola understand what's happening in real time um, through amazon.com, walmart.com, uh, Walmart stores, uh, Target, Lowe's, et cetera. And um, it, traditionally, um, these uh, these brands have been very channels, channel driven. So, um, you know, the Walmart team understands what their throughput is at Walmart for the for the Coca-Cola product. Um, now that we're in a more global 
you know, situation. And I think ERPs have actually been built more globally, um, not so much channel driven, but um, consumer packaged goods over the past two years or 20 years, sorry, has have, have really kind of mangled that and made them very channel driven. Uh, essentially, Stopwatch kind of gets into that middle tissue layer and says, hey, OK, ERP system, this is enterprise. This is for anything that's you know beyond uh, just a specific uh, retailer. And at the same time is sucking in all of the data from the specific retailers so that the decision makers within the consumer packaged goods companies um, are able to look at both ends of the spectrum, uh, both what uh, currently ought to be and then what currently is in the market. And so we do that through a cloud-based, um, you know, very simple uh, structure uh, that basically brings together a ton of disparate data, whether it's uh, through retailer portals, public uh, facing data, um, data that the, that the supplier has that they want to add in on top, um, you know, specific views out of the ERP, et cetera. And essentially we bring that data together and Stopwatch answers four questions. Number one is show me what I have. Number two is tell, uh, make me smarter, meaning get it organized for me. Number three is um, tell me what to do. So there's a lot of alert activities based on business logic. And number four is do it for me. So Stopwatch is actually uniquely designed to interact with the back end of Amazon, the back end of Walmart, et cetera, to actually make impact uh, in real time. So um, you know, we're it's a it's essentially a vision that uh, people who are working in multiple channels uh, can actually cross communicate and be looking at the same data. Interesting. It's really interesting. So you, I think you're, you're, you're leading into the first question I have, which is, it sounds like you've created this product to, like you said, you called it an ERP wrapper. I think you said mm -hmm. it or wrap around or something like that. So it's kind of tying together different pieces of, of what organizations often have, but don't know what to, how to make use of that data and information and processes. But uh, what in general, you know, what, when you look at not just your product, but the ERP space in general, the enterprise technology space in general, what are some of the, what are some examples of um, some of the limitations that these systems have? Because a lot of organizations think of ERP systems as silver bullets. I'm going to put in SAP or Oracle or Microsoft or whatever it is, that's going to automate my entire business. But what you're saying is that's not true. There's gaps, there's other opportunities to drive value even outside what an ERP system does. So what maybe help us understand or give a few examples, if you don't mind, of what the, some of those limitations are and maybe even how your product helps helps fill those gaps. Yeah, um, most definitely. So one of the big problems that we do see kind of in the ERP system is just they're not very flexible in regard to being able to adapt to the multiple different variations of products, all of the identifiers and things like that. And if they are the configuration to get those things really connected and to where it's actionable data is, is very, very difficult to do. So they're very rigid and it's much harder to kind of make those type of pivots to, to get those things really um, connected out from a flexibility standpoint. The next thing we really run into is just people. Uh, it's similar to similar to the flexibility, but versus data storage, it's about process. So ERPs, as they come in, people are very reluctant to actually change their internal processes to then work around how the ERP system wants things to flow. And it, it has to have things flow that way. Uh, so those are two of the big problems that we, we really run into is not being able to have the things that you want to have in the system and not being able to really work with the things that are in the system in the order and in the process that that works best for your organization so um 
Yeah. And changing, you mentioned the word flexibility, but changing the software to do those things can be very cumbersome. I think a lot of times people think, well, I'll just configure the software. And if that doesn't work, I'll customize it. But some of the stuff you're talking about isn't, I mean, that's a total stretch to, to make ERP systems to do some of the stuff that you're, you're talking about. Um, and I, and obviously each system has its own strengths and weaknesses as well. Yeah. yeah to kind of build on that, I think, um, you know, we, we really respect the ERP because it, it, it isn't supposed to be flexible. I mean, it's dealing with your manufacturing and your overseas. I mean, like that's stuff you want to stay very, very firm at an enterprise level. Um, the challenge is, is that there's really kind of that gap between, you know, the firmness, meaning the essence of the product or the bill of materials or however things go together. And those weird things that retailers do, like, I don't know, put two together and put them in shrink wrap, you know, or slap a, a licensing, you know, or a BOGO on them, like, things like that, that, you know, uh, that are more platform specific or seasonally specific, et cetera. Um, you know, you could spend, you know, hundreds of hours uh, putting in every little, you know, flexible variation that, um, you know, the retailers are, are asking to be, you know, put on the shelf. And really Stopwatch kind of closes that gap and makes sure that every variation has a, a home to live in within the ERP. Um, but is it forcing the ERP to make all those gyrations that are, are typically um, just uh, too cumbersome and or uh, don't happen fast enough? Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Megan and James. We're going to take a quick break. We've got a bunch more questions for you. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. My name is Eric Kimberling. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. Thanks for joining us here today. We're right in the middle of an interview with Megan and James. Let's just jump right back into it. Yeah, and you think about something uh, as complex as apparel, and I and I early in my career I spent some time trying to implement ERP at, at apparel companies, and it's just really kludgy because you have size, color, you know, different sizes and colors and styles that you know sort of a matrix of it's the same product, but that same product has all these different variations based on size, color, and style. So it's you know stuff like that. Like I remember that being a huge problem trying to implement an ERP system that could manage certainly the front end stuff, the customer facing side, but also even just as much so the, the back end side of manufacturing. It just, it was a, it was a stretch to make that stuff work. Um, and a lot of- Yeah, I would say, I think, I, I believe um, ERPs have gotten more flexible even since then, but at the same time, you know, as they've gotten better, 
uh, so did like COVID happen and all of a sudden everybody has to sell everything online immediately. So I, I actually like, I respect, I feel like ERPs have kind of like made some good headway and then we all just got smacked in the face. And luck, you know, luckily, you know, Stopwatch was kind of not betting on COVID, but betting on uh, the idea that uh, companies would have um, more, you know, flexible needs faster than the ERP systems would be able to, you know, uniquely customize per industry or per company. Um, and so that's that's kind of where we ended up being a wrapper, um, which is which is a great place to be. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So one thing I you you alluded to, one of you alluded to already that I want to dive into a little bit more is that um, you know, a lot of organizations, not just in the CPG space, but just organizations in general have spent the last few decades implementing and using different types of enterprise technologies, and they've accumulated all this data over the years. And uh, so that's the good news. The good news is they've been capturing data. They've, you know, they've automated or, or codified some of the stuff that in decades past, they wouldn't have codified or captured. Uh, but now a lot of organizations struggle with, well, what do we do with all this data? How do we make use of it? How do we turn that into actionable information or whatever the case may be? Um, what what are some examples of, of the business value that businesses are missing out on by not mining or making better use of that that data that many of them are sitting on? That's a really good question. Um, so one of the one of the things that we really see uh, across uh, a lot of orga different organizations that we work with is the alignment of decision making uh, between the data. So these organizations have all of these different data, you know, all of this different data from different sources and different teams, but very rarely are they actually able to look at that data side by side and make decisions together as a company. So we that's I would say first and foremost, probably the area that that runs into problems is just not actually um, even if not using it kind of together in sync. So if if one team is using this set of data, another team is using this set of data and organizationally, if they use it together, they can make the organization better versus their independent silos. So that is, that is a major a major thing there. Um, the next thing that we start to run into is really just the volume, like from a volume perspective is it's we're getting into an era in a world where people can ob obtain and as you mentioned have all of this data to to go but they actually can't process that data and actually look at it at the same time even so um, a lot of uh, teams and even when you branch into the more you know technical things like outside of excel and and get it into a little bit more powerful bi tools the amount of data people are still processing and still manipulating there still surpasses the limits of even those so with that, you really have to be able to work at, at all levels, you know, for, from the very base data and actually get that data summarized in, to where it is very malleable, to where it's at that business layer. Um, you know, so sometimes like you can either be trying to look at it way too granular or it's just not bubbled up enough. You know, it's like if you're, if you're looking at... Um, you know, sales data for one particular retailer. Well, if you're looking at it um, at the entire, you know, if you're looking at Walmart, for instance, well, looking at your sales for Walmart doesn't necessarily help you figure out how to increase your sales for Walmart. It helps, but knowing and understanding the very granular levels of, okay, well, now my, I have more items shipping from the store at Walmart. So I need to try and get more store inventory. The FC inventory is lowering. So really being able to kind of understand the, the very deep nuances of what's making that data kind of uh, happen and, and, and what's really causing the, the root of it to, to happen. 
Yeah, and kind of building on that, I love James about the granularity. It's it's um, I mean something as simple as a week, right? And Eric, you see this in in industries beyond um, you know beyond what we live in, where you know somebody's fiscal year is different than say you know uh, their client's fiscal year. Right. And so you've got, you know, executives talking about incentives around, you know, how much you ship uh, this this year. Right. And, you know, three days into it, after none of the numbers are matching up, you realize, oh, their year is February, you know, to February and ours is January, January. I mean, it, it seems so simple, but having systems that can mechanize that and, and receive those inputs to to bring things back to normalization just from a time perspective um, is, is it, it's pretty revolutionary. And, and it, what it does is it, it tears down a lot of the kind of angst that a lot of, um, you know, analysts and executives are feeling around the, the trustworthiness of their data. So if you go into an environment where, you know, you're really trying to solve hard problems, um, like James mentioned, like it's one thing to say how many sales happen at Walmart. It's another thing to say, how do we grow? Um, it, you know, it, it, it levels the playing field so that the, the meeting can kick off with, okay, we're all in the same space. Uh, let's all bring our unique, you know, viewpoints uh, from where we sit in the organization. Uh, and, and you don't have to spend, you know, that really tiresome amount of time trying to make sure that you're all on the same page in order to make good decisions. Um, I think that's that's been pretty that's been the biggest surprise for us in terms of watching teams implement stopwatch is kind of that I don't want to say emotional piece, but it it's just we didn't realize how many people were spending a lot of emotional time and energy thinking through the legitimacy of their sources. Um, so that's been a fun surprise for us. Yeah. Now that is interesting. What why is it that why do you think it is that organizations have so much trouble in general? Uh, integrating data just across the organization, across different silos, you, you know, what, what do you think that root cause is? I know that when I know when I was in product development, um, um, I wasn't incentivized to really care about data beyond, you know, my particular action plan. Um, I don't know if that's common. I mean, I was kind of more junior at that stage of my career, um, but I know I had no reason or incentive around the organization to do something bigger than what was right in front of me. Um, I don't know if that's just my position, but James, I'm curious because you know, in case stack, you you had some of that as well. Yeah, I'm trying to. So, could you re-ask? Could you hit me with the question again? I want to be make sure I'm, I'm, I'm hitting everything um, spot on for you. Yeah, Sorry. we're so we're talking about the the integration of data across an organization. Why why is it that you know if organizations have data in their ERP systems or whatever legacy systems they might have used over the years, they've accumulated all this data. Why is it that they have so much trouble integrating and making use of that data you know or what do you think it is based on your, your guys's experience 
Yeah, so I, I definitely think the technical aspects are still a big blocker in that. Um, you know, the the investments into the actual you know tech spaces for for CPG. Um, you know, you think about tech for CPG. Well, you know, they still have websites. They still have other other internal systems that they're trying to build as well. Not only focused around kind of harnessing data. So, um, oftentimes, I think these projects kind of get get pushed down um, kind of the priority ladder internally within the CPG companies themselves, because that's not necessarily the focus of the organization. It'll help them do sales, but they also need to, to operate the organization. So I think that's where a lot of the resources go from a timing perspective. Um, I, I think another thing that I've really picked up on is just not knowing that it's available as well. So, um, you know, as, as we mentioned, the, these teams that set kind of in different seats and they, they have different roles and different responsibilities, they don't really know that their supply chain guy knew that this item was going to be out of stock three weeks ago because he got a call from the manufacturer saying it wasn't going to, you know, so if that information isn't actually translated down, then then you're not actually going to be able to use that data. And I think just from a, a role's responsibility and security and how the teams are are, are fundamentally built. That's, I think that's the next stage um, from a limitation because, you know, you, you think about it, like, I mean, we're, we're accomplishing this, you know, kudos to us. I do feel like, you know, we're, we're smart people, but we're not the only smart people in, on, on the planet. Like the, the, the technology and, and the resources are available, but it is, it is how um, it, 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 it's definitely based around that priority and, and just that fundamental way of thinking um, of we need to make this data shared and we need to make sure our data is accessible. So that, that's just not something that's really hit the forefront, um, I think, of the seats. And as it is, they're realizing, oh, this is much harder. Um, and now companies you know, such as Stopwatch can get them there a lot faster than they can actually take their own organizations there. Um, and from a buy, borrow, build perspective, by the time they could take their organization there, the technology they chose is going to be out of date and there's going to be something new next time. So it's kind of that point of, of uh, you know, do we continue to invest internally in that particular piece? Because it is so ever-changing, um, which I think kind of gets gets it cut down a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of like, uh, you know, we're talking about just fairly fundamental stuff, you know, trying to integrate the data and trying to make use of it. But if you take it even a step further, then you start to get into where you could really use data to be a game changer, like machine learning and AI and stuff like that, predictive analytics. Um, is that part of what your of what Stopwatch does? Is it it takes that data and, and uses either machine learning or AI or whatever you want to call it to? Uh, I, I know I'm not being very technically specific there on my loose <laughs> interchange of words there, but how how would you describe uh, the way the technology? uses some of those data sources that it's pulling from. Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and start and then James can probably, you know, loop back with a more technical aspect. I would say, um, the, you know, data science, the 90% of data science is, is, is cleaning and normalizing data, period. Like the, the best machine learning models um, and, you know, take that a step further to autonomous action, like you can trace them back to, how rigid and you know obsessed the original people putting the information into the model were. I mean, it's um, and so you know I want to be really careful on on things like machine learning. We we talk a lot in our team, and we're just not very sexy. Um, machine learning is really just doing the you know something that works over and over and over again, faster, you know, et cetera. And every input, you know, from a supervised learning perspective you know, informs that next action. And so, you know, when people ask us like, hey, you know, do you guys do machine learning? We're always kind of like, yeah, we, we actually do. 
Um, but you don't earn the right to get there until like we've cleaned your data so you know sparkly that you may not even need that machine learning thing that you thought you needed because literally like all of the information just kind of raises to the surface when you get just get to a straight normalization. So most of our engagements, you know, people, um, you know, they're asking us, you know, for that hot machine learning and stuff. And, and we're just kind of the sometimes the bearer of bad news and say, listen, uh, we'll turn on supervised learning about three months in. Um, but we, we don't and we definitely won't start, turn on unsupervised learning until you know we've got a handle on uh, what the things that are going into the model are actually true. Otherwise, we'll just proliferate the same kind of silliness that that you've been living in. Um, and so those are always awkward conversations, um, and they're you know they're not cool. Um, but I think when people understand, you know, when we demystify these technologies, I mean, you can again, James can go into the technical pieces of it. But at the end of the day, it's doing more of something that works and less of something that doesn't right and then predict what might work and then you know test and learn and uh the cool thing about being in the it's it, particularly in the e-commerce you know retail unified commerce space is that um you know you have real-time feedback you have did it sell you know did the unit move um and uh so the models can learn very quickly um the you know but if the models aren't learning um in a normalized fashion, uh, if we're training uh, Walmart, you know, if we're training Coca-Cola on Walmart separate from the way we're training Coca-Cola on Amazon, you don't receive that magic gray matter between the two where Coca-Cola just wants to sell more to consumers. It doesn't really matter to them if it's more through Walmart or Amazon. Okay, so that's a very different input and a very different way to look at your business than, you know, Walmart, you know, so it's it's one of those where, um, yeah, I mean, I I always argue, and and James and the team deliver this really well. Ninety percent of our work is just getting the data clean, transparent, and right, um, including all the tribal nuances that only the owner of the data knows, <laughs> you know, like um, which we you know which we oftentimes miss, and if we don't have those tweaked out before we put it into a model, you know, the model's just gonna reinforce what we already knew and we'll be in the same place. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much to it, you know, to that whole data piece, as far as just the, the potential for human interaction to, to undermine the quality of the data or to, to make the data less meaningful. And then certainly on the output side, if you don't have the right human interaction, the right tools to make use of that data, that could be, that could be very challenging. Okay, thanks, Megan and James. We're going to take a quick break. We've got a bunch more questions for you. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices 
at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. Thanks for joining us here today. We're right in the middle of an interview with Megan and James. Let's just jump right back into it. We actually have, uh, just as a side note, we we have uh, some questions starting to come in on, on social media. Um, first of all, just to get back to the point or the question of where people are, uh, it appears that your stomping ground there of, of Bentonville, Arkansas is sort of a hotbed of not only CPG type stuff, but uh, some of the audience, several audience members are, are from the Bentonville area. We have someone from South Bend, Indiana, Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, among other places. So uh, thanks everyone for letting us know where, where you're joining from today. But uh, the question I want to get to here on um, uh, LinkedIn is, uh, it, it might be more of a comment, but I'd just be curious to see what, what you all think here. And this is from Karthik on LinkedIn. And his comment is, it could be the lack of IT strategy. Um, and I think this might have been a response to my question about data and that whole line of questioning I, I just gave you. Uh, but Karthik says it could be the lack of IT strategy, especially when an enterprise uses many products for many different vendors. Vendor products don't really communicate. It's crucial an enterprise needs to have a centralized system that will or- orchestrate the core of the business. Um, for example, in a hotel business, they have to orchestrate the hotel room reservation. So uh, what are your thoughts on that as far as, uh, would you agree with that, that a lot of it is is the different products that don't integrate or don't communicate well together? And is that something that Stopwatch helps solve? Yeah, no, uh, I definitely think that's yeah a, a good call out from that perspective. Like it's uh, that is definitely something we see across our members to where this team is using this tool, this team is using this tool, and then they have to pay by license, so they keep it restricted, and then uh, and then those tools don't talk to each other, and there is never a way to kind of extract out those values together. So w- w- definitely one hundred percent, you know, from you know fr- from that strategy perspective of like as they grow and as they have these different tools that kind of solve little bits and pieces of the information uh, or kind of bits and pieces of their problem they're never kind of putting it into this uh, okay here's all the problems we've solved with all the all of the tool sets and now now the next person that buys the next tool um you know it even goes into we've seen the same organization buy multiple tools to solve the same set of problems across different teams in the organization. It's not only just like, I, I can't solve it. So it's, it's definitely a, a, like just a communication is a big thing. And just having that shared budget, having that shared, I think, sense of, I don't want to say sense of purpose necessarily, but, but from an organization standpoint, having that shared camaraderie of this is for the company. And this is, this is how we truly push the company forward by working together. Um, that mentality paired with that it's quick to, to, you know, for the business unit to, to call out and get another tool in that comes in and solves this particular problem. And then the other team does it. And then it definitely does. Um, and, and, and that's the same, that is something that we do address as well. So as we come across different teams that are using different tools, different sources and have different uh, bits of pieces uh, we've, develop things in a way that are very, very customizable. One of the things that we wanted to avoid, um, and it kind of ties back to the ERP systems is like, when you buy an ERP system, you're, you're buying a system like that. That is a very expensive, um, you know, system typically. And they, they have started making them more and more modular, you know, modularized 
um, as we've continued, but it's still not at the level of you're still going to have stuff in your IP that no one in your company knows how to use and no one in your company has any plan to ever use it. Yet you've had to pay for that and it lives there in your system. You can see it like you could go play with it if you wanted to. Um, and, and that's really just that's not what we want. So um, we definitely architected things in a way that can take those various separate systems that that may be used you know, to solve different problems. And if you're already solving that problem and you're happy with the way that problem is being solved, then then we don't try to solve that problem again for you like that. That's a waste of, of your time and, and hours you know, from that perspective. But what we do want to do is your solution. We want to make sure that your solution and the answers that you have are available and accessible to everyone else within your organization. Um, and that keeps them from having to buy that, you know, accidentally buying that same thing again. And it just keeps that knowledge kind of in that shared, um, shared space. So, uh, yeah. 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 I, I second like great call out. Um, Carthur, Carthur, is that the name? That was Carthic. Carthic. Um, I think, um, at least in the space we're in. So, you know, we can speak specifically to consumer packaged goods, kind of that hierarchy. Um, there's a real tension between IT and and the business, like just being honest. And so I think it is an IT strategy. I also really think at least, especially in our space, um, it's a data governance strategy that the, the leaders of sales, marketing, and brand are also fully bought into. We see this all the time where, um, you know, we, we work with everybody from General Mills to Energizer to, I mean, big, big companies, very complex and very smart companies. Um, but their IT oftentimes doesn't know what the business is doing and vice versa. They have very different budgets kind of to James's point. And, you know, if you're in a sales and marketing role and you're being incentivized on making more revenue and you see a shiny tool that you could just, you know, buy for $10 a month and make that happen. And you've got this pile of money you will do that, right? Um, unless you're incentivized to really take a step back and say, okay, time out. How do I take this idea or this concept back to the bigger team and that bigger team have the accountability to move fast, right? So we see it all the time where the reason the sales teams don't wanna take it back to the IT is because it just dies, right? Or it goes really slow. The reason the IT teams don't like to push anything out to the sales teams is because the sales teams never get it. And um, it's just kind of this funny like balance. So when you talk about an IT strategy, I would argue, and, and Eric, this is probably where you and your team come in. It's a combination of an IT data um, and really a uh, user strategy. Um, and you gotta have champions in every every bucket because um, uh, yeah, we've, we've literally talked with people who are like, don't tell our IT we're doing this or, um, you know, and. Uh, I would, I would argue the, the first thing that we do, we don't we don't have sales decks. Uh, we sit down with people and say, okay, tell us all the tools you're currently using and what do each of those tools solve? And they'll you know kind of go through it and they're like, this is a weird way to start a sales call. And I'm like, exactly. We don't want to do what you already have done. Like, you know, if we earn the right to have an opportunity to, you know, to, to earn that piece of the business down the road, that's fine. But, you know, if you already have somebody that's serving as your, you know, your PIM or your DAM or, you know, whatever, like, basically, we, our job is to make Stopwatch available so that that can plug in and you guys can see it all together. Um, it's not to go over and take over that piece um, and, and squeeze somebody out. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really good point. And it, it, as you were talking there, as you guys were, were answering that, that question or comment, it, it, you know, it, made, it occurred to me that, you know, such a big part of this 
whole transformation is is really the organizational, not just the change management, which I always talk about that on this show and other thought leadership we put out, but it's also about the organizational design more specifically. Like, how are you going to design the organization? What are people's roles and responsibilities? How are you going to comp them? I mean, if you're trying to, you know, the tool, like the stopwatch tool provides some great automation and information and it fills those gaps that ERP doesn't do. But if you just put it, if you just put in the technology and people are still doing things the way they always have, it it doesn't matter. You know, you have to, you have to change the, like you said, the user strategy, the organizational design, roles and responsibilities. You have to design all that stuff thoughtfully so that you can really get value out of, out of a system like this. Well, that's, I mean, that's kind of where, I mean, not to sound self-righteous, that's not the intention at all, but that's where I, I think too, you know, we started building stopwatch you know, James had this vision for modularization four years ago. That was not cheap to build it that way. <laughs> like, like we basically like took a lot of really weird bets a long time ago um, that give us flexibility today. And what I what I think is important is, you know, when people are talking about, you know, solving tools, is that um, I don't think, you know people that don't sell the way we do are necessarily um, malicious. I, I think it's in their best interest to sell the tool as their tool is built, right? Which which really leads to a lot of duplicity potentially of tools. Whereas when you have a very modularized cloud-based system and you come in and you're not threatened by the fact that like we have to implement it this way or else we're not gonna make any money, um, is is a really different approach. And again, I, I think we, you know, we had some foresight, we had some vision, and we got really lucky um, in terms of, you know, the bets that we took early on um, to do that. And, and you know, so now we kind of, you know, we, we, we kind of, you know, as digital transformation is becoming more popular, we challenge our peers to, um, to do right by the company um, and ask those questions before, um, instead of just ramrodding in because, you know, I I feel like it's part of our responsibility to help them make good decisions, uh, regardless of whether or not it's, you know, to buy, you know, two extra licenses from Stopwatch versus two extra licenses from, you know, Tableau or something. It doesn't matter to me. Like, they just need to get it right. 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 So I guess along those lines, you just triggered a a question going back to one of the early comments you made, Megan, about the four things that, that Stopwatch does. Um, the fourth one, uh, I mean, you mentioned that it helps you understand what, what you have. It makes you smarter, helps you define what to do, and then it does it for me. Could you maybe walk through, you know, I think using Stopwatch as a, as a use case of how technology, other than just a core ERP system, can automate some things. Maybe could could you walk us through that? Like, what do you mean by those four things, or how does the how does a technology like Stopwatch help do that? Yeah. So James, James and team really live. I mean, they live in the whole thing. But you know, the the do it for me does not exist without show me what I have, make me smarter, tell me what to do. So that's where literally like ninety percent of of the of the value comes. What's interesting, and, and I don't know if this is just unique to consumer packaged goods, um, uh, but there are things um, regarding um, how you interact with Amazon, you know, um, how you interact with Walmart from a backend perspective that are very manual, right? Uh, Amazon has a portal that you as a human log into and you type things in to tell Amazon, you know, what's going on. Uh, independent of EDI, like there's just a lot of 
kind of computerized mechanization um, that humans are ultimately doing. And, um, you know, in any sort of automation kind of system, uh, and this is where the machine learning comes in, you know, once we see, you know, the organization doing, you know, uh, you know, uh, process X over 10 times, you know, that's a couple of SQL queries and, you know, some connector points and pushing things up through an API. So it sounds, it sounds very, um, like mysterious, like do it for me, but really all it is is watching organizations do the same thing with the same partner over and over again. And what we say is we're not going to solve every do it for me, right? Like if you need to, you know, load, um, you know, the, the complex, you know, hazmat regulations of shipping motor oil, you know, to to Alaska, like that's not something we're going to do for you like that. That is very specialized. But if your product title falls off because a competitor grabbed one of your keywords and you need to put it back up, like that's pretty easy. And that happens a lot of times. And so our goal is really to kind of commoditize a lot of that real easy stuff because because you can unleash kind of unsupervised learning in that way um, so that the people who do have the knowledge, um, you know, can kind of watch those reports, make sure that it's all going right, but then they can spend their time and mental energy towards the exceptions where oftentimes the growth happens, right? Like you're not going to gain growth by like continuing to make sure all your titles are right, but you're definitely going to lose if all your titles aren't right, right? So how do you plug that, you know, get the titles right so that then you can focus on growth? Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Megan and James. We're going to take a quick break. We've got a bunch more questions for you. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. My name is Eric Kimberling. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. Thanks for joining us here today. We're right in the middle of an interview with Megan and James. Let's just jump right back into it. So in, I don't know if you'll know the answer to this, so you can you guys can always pass on this because it, it wasn't something I, was, I told you I would ask you. But, uh, James but I, the, question that, the question that popped into my mind, though, is so you you do you you spend the product itself uh helps people do their job to some degree and it, it, it creates a certain amount of uh uh efficiency gain and, and productivity gain and all that good stuff which means that it frees up some amount of time i don't know how significant that is but whatever that amount of time is that it frees up do you do you know or have you seen any examples of how people then end up using that time in a more either in a more strategic way or they end up kind of redirecting their attention to something more important or you know, have you seen that sort of on the flip side once they've adopted the technology? Because I think it gets back to that organizational design piece and how we, what our user strategy is to to make full use of this technology. 
Yeah, I know, I know we've had, so from a straight up, like one-to-one, we've had, um, uh, we've had uh, teams say that we've, we've let go of agencies where we had 15 people, you know, working for us to deliver, you know, this piece. And now we just have one person overseeing stopwatch um, for a fraction of the cost. So that's, that's kind of like a straight economics trade-off. Right. Um, we've seen, and James, I'll let you kind of talk to this too. Um, we've seen, you know, some everyday product managers or everyday business analysts um, be able to move the needle for their businesses by up to 30% just by looking at um, by store allocation, right? Um, you know, how many units are moving through this particular store? Should we be shipping more to this store? Cause it's always out of stock. Oh my gosh, if we just had, you know, this particular store in stock one more day a week, you know, I double my business. I mean, there, there's just those pockets of insights and granularity that once they have the chance to really dig in and see these kind of movements, um, they become heroes and it's, it, it's, it's things that they would naturally go for if they had the time and energy and visibility to do it. And so I think that's, that's, what's been really exciting to see is that these kind of everyday heroes rise up with these, you know, amazing insights that then they go act upon. And, and it really does impact the business because they're able to, to hit the granular pieces, um, that nobody's uncovered. Um, I don't know, James, what have you seen? Cause you're kind of in there too. Yeah, no, I would, I, I think you're, you're definitely spot on. Uh, and kind of from, from that, I think you also have the, the continual growth, like m most of the time, you know, as, as we're talking to teams, you know, teams that are talking about and looking for data solutions and things like that, they've always, they've had that, should I, should I buy, borrow, build, you know, like that people have those conversations. And oftentimes they're like, okay, we're going to build it in-house. So what does that look like? We're going to hire three analysts and we're going to do this. And it takes a team of analysts. Um, and quite frankly, what that team of analysts is going to end up doing is work on pulling data and getting it normalized and getting it to where they can begin to use a fraction of their time to actually analyze and try to make the business better. Where So where we've seen kind of from that and that shift of time is now your business analyst, they're, they're not like we... We didn't necessarily change, you know, all, all of them, but from a timing perspective, they're now able to take their time from, okay, well, I've downloaded these reports. I've gotten all this and here's your sales report. That's what they did. You know, that's what they did on their Monday to, well, now when your analyst gets in on Monday as well, they have all of that stuff already completed and they can actually start to look at the deeper insights from your business and actually, and do the things that, that, that more than likely, like, you know, we don't claim to know to be better than an internal analyst. Like, of course, like if, if I had access to the very inner deep workings of some of our members and could get every little nuance detail and, and have that, you're going to be able to make better decisions specifically to the organization you're in. So having an analyst is important, but having your analysts truly be able to like focus on like impactful decisions to make his point of like being able to find that store level. Well, they can't do that level of detail if they had to spend the majority of their time just trying to get the store sales into, you know, for the week into a report. Like that's, that's where their time goes versus actually looking at the numbers and the data itself. Um, all important and, and nothing to them, but because that's just really is the spot that we're at. Um, 
you know, holy. We, kind of, we call it Revenge of the Nerds. Like we know that there's like hundreds of sixty thousand dollar, you know, analysts all over the country who are really smart people, but actually probably haven't come up with a really unique, you know, prop, you know, cadence of problem solving because they they are they're uh, conditioned to just get it together for like a quarterly review and they spend like five weeks on one big deck that has like these really big trendy you know things and we're like what if they could actually just walk it in the morning and just start gamifying like their business and come into those quarterly reviews look like hey i grew your business you know 50 percent, and that's a very different kind of conversation and those are where we want those analysts to be right yeah it's super interesting I mean, I, because I could see a, a tool like Stopwatch and there, there's other products out there that might have similar uh, pros and cons, but I could see it being so powerful that it could be it could be over my head as a user. And if I'm not taught how to use it and taught how to, you know, make meaning of it and make sense of what what it's doing, like what's actually happening and, and how you can use that data, it's just, it's almost so futuristic that I think a lot of people have trouble relating to it or understanding how they could really use that to do their job differently. And it's really about rethinking their job and what their purpose is and gets into a whole bunch of other stuff, you know, outside of technology. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting that you say that, Eric. We've actually seen this a couple of times and I liken it to when my husband and I were um, fostering kiddos. Um, you know, these kids would be really hungry and then they'd come into our house and they'd, they'd steal food from us in our house, you know, and hide it. Um, because they were so used to being hungry, right? Um, yeah. And even though they had the access, like open fridge, you can go get it, whatever, um, they still behaved in a way as if, you know, they, they were deprived. And I liken that a lot to people who first start using stopwatch. And we have to do a lot of work around helping them feel like, um, you know, like with this new space that they have, that they they actually can spread their wings a little bit. And so um, it is, you know, one of our challenges and James works with our membership team. Um, we always joke, we're not consultants by any means. We are a SaaS company, but we do meet with every membership group every single week, mostly because we just wanna make sure that they're getting what they need out of the software and we're encouraging them as they're kind of, you know, starting this new journey. Um, those are the really fun calls. Uh, just to see their their momentum over time. You know, the first three weeks or so, like, it's kind of like, come on, guys, like, you know, you got to come up with something better than this, and we'll kind of bring up some stuff or ask some questions or whatever, and then all of a sudden it breaks through, and they're just, you know, flying. Yeah, yeah there's there, there's definitely a set limit there um, where you you see them come in and then all of a sudden they realize all of these problems are on the table to be solved um, because that, that's one of the things we get a lot like what problems do you solve well it's like well like you know problems that require multiple data sources timelines sources you know platforms and data at scale like you know it, it's one of those it's you know the, the business you know the business case it's like do you have a profitability problem? Do you have a stock problem? Do you have like, you know, every problem, you know, in that sense is, is fairly unique to that particular organization. And, and especially once you take it to the level that we do, because the problem is, you know, like, is like, we can give you a solution to, you know, like, um, so like that particular problem using Megan's example of like, the store that has the high sell through runs out of stock yet you keep these same eight on the shelf for this other store the entire time and it never moves so let's get that inventory to this you know like that 
<laughs> those particular things are the problems that we can solve to, to actually make the impact, um, you know, outside of the like big picture problem of being able to kind of manage and handle and, and do the, you know, handle the data at scale. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's good stuff. Well, I, I appreciate that. That's, uh, that's probably a good way, a good place to leave it. And, and I have to share this one comment, uh, from uh, Luciano on, on LinkedIn. It's not a question or anything you guys really need to dig into, but I just thought it was funny. Um, it kind of relates to the human side of what we're talking about. But he, uh, Luciano on LinkedIn said, uh, I talk to my kids, but they don't talk to me. I use my wife as middleware, as the middleware <laughs> integration platform. So as we were talking about, <laughs> we're talking about data integration, that was his takeaway is that uh, he, he can take some of these lessons and apply it in his home life. So that's, that's good. I'm glad we, we at least helped Luciano in, in some way. <laughs> So I think we, I think some of us can relate to that. James is my middleware to our development team. I can say something and they they just look at me like I'm crazy. And then James turns around and it all happens. And I'm like, what did you say? And like, clearly better. (laughs) Use your API conduit there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good deal. All right. Well, well, thanks a lot, guys, for joining today. This was a really interesting conversation. And uh, how can one last question? How can people learn more about Stopwatch? What website? You know, what's your website? All that good stuff. Yeah. So you can go on um, HTTPS uh, Stopwatch.tech um, is our direct site. Um, you can find us on LinkedIn at Stopwatch. I'll be honest, we um, we don't have a sales team. Uh, everything's inbound. Uh, we've grown the business to date on recommendations and, and shares. And um, so, you know, if we're, you know, even if you just want to talk nerdy, that's fine. Uh, if we're not the solution for you, we will tell you. Um, just because we really have a passion uh, to make sure you get it right. And if we can help you get it right, we'll help you get it right. And if it's not us, we will help you find the people to get it right. So. Good deal. All right. Thank you, Megan and James. Great conversation. Thanks for being here today. Appreciate having you both on the show. And uh, there's a lot of uh, good talking points and food for thought that came out of that discussion that Kyler and I are going to talk about. First, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Tietum. You can find new episodes of this podcast every Wednesday on YouTube as well as all the audio podcast platforms. Um, such as Spotify, Google, Amazon, Apple, wherever you happen to listen to podcasts, you can find us there. Just look up Transformation Ground Control if you're not already listening on there. And be sure to also subscribe to the podcast either on those platforms and or on YouTube as well. We'd love to have you have you as a subscriber and get notified every time we put out new episodes, which is every Wednesday. So we just had Megan and James from Stopwatch on the show, Kyler, and uh, some interesting stuff, interesting technology. It's, it's a type of technology I wasn't very familiar with before this conversation. What, what were some of your thoughts from that conversation? 
Yeah, I had no idea, you know, that this was an opportunity, but it makes so much sense, right? Um, so I, I guess just to kind of clarify, if say I were a customer that chose um, either a best of breed system or an ERP system, and there was something that I didn't have the capability to do, then I would go see, um, I would go see the Stone Stonehead Stonehead Lab, excuse me, um, and then they would kind of give me stopwatch that would help showcase how I could fill those gaps. Is that kind of how it works? Yeah, it it could be that you're doing that as part of a as some sort of broader technological change. But what's interesting about their technology and, and other technologies out there as well that are totally different and do different things of what Stopwatch does is there's all these other technologies out there that you could be using just to optimize what you already have. And I think a lot of companies forget that there might be more fundamental, more basic, um, lower cost, higher ROI types of solutions and options out there. But we get so enamored by this whole idea that, hey, we need to replace all of our systems or we need to do a massive rip, uh, rip out and replace uh, of our current systems. And like we talked about earlier in the show, some companies just aren't cut out for that. Some of them don't have the resources, some don't have the bandwidth, some don't have the, the tolerance. Uh, some don't have the capital budgets, whatever. There, there's a lot of reasons why you shouldn't do a, a full-blown digital transformation. Even if it means you're just punting the problem down the road two, three, or five years, that's okay. That is not the end of the world, despite what software vendors that want to sell you software might might tell you. So I think that's the key is just to look at, you know, do I, first of all, are there solutions like that out there that might help get me more out of my current systems? Or to your point, is this, uh, are there multiple systems that I might need to help help me get to where I want to go and accomplish my goals. Yeah, that's so cool. That's a, such a neat model. So basically, they a business could go and they could basically assess, you know, these are your processes right now or, or specifically on the data side, you know, this is your data right now and how do you kind of clean that up, manage it, optimize it as opposed to recommend maybe a new system. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of times when clients hire us to help define their digital strategy, we look at multiple scenarios. You look at the full-blown, massive rip and replace scenario, which is usually your higher cost one. It may or may not be your highest benefit. That's part of the analysis. And then you look at the more incremental changes or more of the, the spot, you know, the targeted focus solutions. It's probably going to be lower cost, may or may not be a higher ROI in terms of the benefit you get out of that. Um, and then there's, you know, some hybrids in there as well. So I think that's the key is just really agnostically with a clear set of eyes um, without being sold to try and figure out what, you know, what are those options look like? What are my paths? What are the pros and cons of each? And really just fully assess, you know, I like, I like to have three options. I mean, that's, and it's not just cause we're called third stage and I'm superstitious about the number three now, ever since starting third stage, um, whether it, by the way, even, even if an athlete is number three on a team, I'm always rooting for number three, whoever Whoa, it is. Or number, okay. or number 33, three or 33. I'm always, uh, I like just, it. Way to commit, really yeah. live, breathe, be the brand. I like it. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so anyway, but, but there is a, usually you look at three paths and that's just easy to digest. Usually that's a good, it gives you a good spectrum of sort of general directional paths. And then once you land on a path, then you sort of fine tune it and define all the sub, you know, the sub branches or sub paths you might go down. Um, but I think that agnostic, you know, fresh view of your path forward is, is really important. Oh, definitely. Um, and I, I love their their overall concept of data, you know, that that seems to be I especially liked when 
um, we said sparkly data because that that was a new one that I really plan to use regularly now um, within my digital transformation language. But um, it sounds like that is such a, a huge opportunity, especially for those smaller clients that might not have data management assets or support, because so many times we tell clients in the beginning, you need to make sure your, your data is clean, it's ready to go, or there's no point in getting another system. And so many times you think like, well, how am I supposed to do that? You know, and, and I think a partner like this would be a great opportunity to kind of learn more about what that means for your overall data management strategies before something like a huge migration or even understanding from your data, what what is my business opportunities and what are some strategies I can build out of this information that I never really had access or was in a consumable manner before. So I thought that was a really well said on their side. Yeah, because you want to have a clear vision of what you're going to do with the data, you know, before mm -hmm. you before you migrate it or figure out, you know, spend all this time and money and effort cleansing it, mapping it, moving it over. A lot of times companies just sort of go through the motions of, well, I've got to bring my data over, so I'm just going to do it. Sometimes maybe you don't need that data. I don't know. I mean, it exactly, depends on yeah. what you're going to do with it. Or you have no idea what it says, you know, and there could be an opportunity or a story to tell within that information that you've just never really massaged it into an area in which you understand what it means. Um, and I, I think that can be overwhelming, especially for our, our small to mid-sized tier and just not having that analyst support. So um, I hope we, you know, we learn more about their journey as they're still, you know, a newer, um, smaller company and, you know, excited for that kind of fresh perspective and, and um, identification of an area within our industry that I had no idea existed. Yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. And it's a good reminder that there's a lot of nooks and crannies and different rabbit holes you can go down with with technology. And um, I was calling it alternative technology. You were kind of referring to as niche, you know, before we, as we were prepping for this episode. Uh, but I think either way, that's the way to think of it is, that, you know, there are these little, little niche areas that can create a huge amount of value that oftentimes we forget about. And so we, what we end up doing oftentimes is we end up spending all this money on the other stuff that doesn't add a lot of business value, like your your GL and accounts payable and AR. Okay, if I have to spend X amount of money, am I really saving much money there? Or is it, am I just doing it because I'm enamored by this whole concept of a big ERP system that ties everything together? If there's business value there, certainly do it. And if you can prove there's business value, then do it. But a lot of times companies forget there's also these other little areas that often, more often than not, they deliver more value uh, dollar for dollar than, than a big messy ERP implementation. Yeah. So and you know, what's, what's the worst that's going to happen is you're going to figure out that you need an actual ERP system, <laughs> you know, going through these, like, these like less cost scenarios, I feel like is due diligence to seeing, you know, what actual project do you need as a business leader? Yeah. Yeah. Especially on these customer facing technologies or things that affect your customer experience or your ability to sell more. I mean, that's the stuff that drives revenue. It drives the customer loyalty and, all the stuff that presumably makes your business successful. So if you can get that value faster, you can always go back later and put in a new ERP system. Um, so those are just some of the things to think about for sure, but that is good stuff. So that's a good, good conversation. So uh, we're going to shift gears quite a bit, actually, in the next segment, we're going to move from sort of this alternative niche technology aspect of digital transformation. And we're going to bring it up a level now back at the big picture, looking at 
private equity owned firms and in, in particular, you know, high growth, mid-sized organizations, even if you're not private equity owned or if you're not part of a private equity firm, there's still a lot of good lessons to be learned in this conversation we're going to have here after the break with uh, Stuart Robb, who's our vice president of Third Stage in the UK. He handles all of our European clients and our European team. So uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. New episodes every Wednesday on all the podcast platforms, whether it's YouTube or any of the audio platforms. And uh, I'm excited for our next guest, Stuart Robb, who's been on our show a couple times now, right, Kyler? It's two or three times maybe he's been on uh, this podcast. Oh, yeah. He's a regular. He's a regular. He's a regular on the Third Stage YouTube channel. He's become somewhat of a, a YouTube sensation of sorts. And, uh, Excited to have him on the show here today to talk about something he's very passionate about, which is private equity and digital transformation within high growth and private equity types of organizations. So uh, with that being said, Stuart, welcome to the show. Okay, thank you, Eric. So just real quickly, uh, before we set up the context a little bit more as far as this topic around PE, uh, private equity and digital transformations, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself, Stuart. Um, you're, you're part of the third stage team, but maybe tell us what you do now and a little bit about your background. Yeah, sure. Um, so my name's Stuart Robb. Um, I'm Vice President of Third Stage European Practice. Um, we operate predominantly at the moment in Western Europe. Um, so we've got clients in France, Belgium, Germany, Italy, uh, as well as the UK, of course. Um, I've been doing uh, ERPs since about 1998, started off in Anderson Consulting. Um, then on to Ernst & Young, uh, and then finally at Capgemini Australia, where I was Director of Transformation Consulting for a few years um, before freelancing on um, ERPs and CRM uh, since about 2005. Um, so I've got quite a lot of uh, deep and wide experience of ERP, everything from SAP, Oracle, um, Aggresso, NetSuite, Microsoft Dynamics, and, and on and on and on it goes. So um, a re reasonably broad church. Um, and I've taken a particular interest in private equity. Um, I've been involved in a number of private equity deals. Uh, the biggest one um, being the MicroFocus spin merge with Hewlett Packard's uh, HP software division. Um, that was in 2016. And I had some, um, uh, some dealings with the um, ERP uh, replacement program and, and its setup. 
Um, I also uh, have a number. Of, we have a number of PE clients in um, in the UK and Europe. Um, so Miraclon, Private Equity, A3 Capital, um, uh, Aquilia, uh, and a number of others, uh, which we which we're currently working for uh, on a number of clients uh, of theirs. Um, doing ERP advisory, future state, business process transformation, and various other activities of that nature. So um, I, I'm probably the one that picks up most of the PE stuff over in Europe, um, just because I can spell PE. Right. And you know what, you, you know at a high level what it means. <laughs> well, hopefully, yes. Don't ask so, me that question, though, will you? <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, you know, it may sound like a, an, a, an overly basic question, but maybe just to start... Um, just tell us what is what is private equity. I mean, maybe help us understand that what, well, what private well, equity is and how it entails. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I mean, the difference between private equity and um, a public company is that the um, equity shares are owned by uh, private shareholders, um, and they will either own a majority or minority stock, usually a majority stock in a particular company, and they may have bought that company, which has been spun out of a division of a larger firm, um, like uh, one of our clients was uh, spun out of Kodak uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and so um, they, that, that spin was bought, Spinco was bought by a private equity firm and now they own it um, and they have uh, board level representation. So basically it's private financing and usually um, the financing that the private equity firms arrange is uh, funds that are provided by pension funds or banks or whatever, um, and they will make a private investment in a company, and then they will seek to um, gain a return on investment, uh, both through uh, improving the profitability of the company, um, and in some cases where it's not quite so uh, good, is by um, selling off the assets or selling and leasing back the assets uh, or um, you know, drawing down on the pension over funded pension schemes um, in order to, to, to get a return on investment. Um, and so, you know, uh, there was a recent case where Debenhams had gone into private equity and all of their um, real estate assets that they'd owned for 100 years were sold and leased back. And now, of course, um, you know, Debenhams is, um, I, I, I think it's actually in administration. So there are some bad PE firms. There are some good PE firms. We try to work with the good PE firms, um, but, but not all of them are good. Right. So before we get into this whole digital transformation discussion that we're going to get to here in a second, um, taking that your response there one step further. So PE firm has money to spend and they're, they're going to invest it in a company and they, they want to get some sort of return on that investment and yeah. they want to maximize value, grow the company, all that good stuff. What, right. Just in general, how would you summarize how a PE firm typically gets involved in the day-to-day -day operations of the acquisition company that they're um, involved with? It, it depends. Um, uh, I, I mean, um, they. Uh, my experience is that PE firms tend to be more active on the board um, than, uh, you know, a PLC company, which may have its own board of directors. Um, but those board of directors usually are, are fairly hands off, whereas a PE firm will be much more directive. Um, so where we get involved, um, uh, typically we can get involved from uh, the point of due diligence of the, uh, the potential spin co um, 
uh, and uh, we'll look at what their current systems and technology is doing, what their ERP, CRM, HCM, and all the rest of it looks like, uh, and make you know observations as to whether or not we think um, that's a good investment or they're just going to be in for a world of pain. Um, and then once the acquired uh, the acquisition has occurred and the deal's closed, um, then we we will get you know involved in looking at. Uh, what the future state of that organization should be. Um, we will give advice on um, where that where we think they can automate, optimize processes, put in RPA, put in AI, you know, uh, and lev because obviously what they want to do is to leverage as much money as they can out of the company. So they need to raise profits and they need to draw back on costs. And it's still people are usually um, the highest cost in organizations and so you know obviously they will want to try to replace people uh, through optimization of processes if if that's practical to do um, so so we will typically go in uh, in you know initial four-week engagement look at what they've got uh, look at the landscape look at the technology look at how they're deploying it and make some recommendations now in some cases they have no choice but to put a new complete IT architecture in um, so where you're coming from a very, very large division of a major Fortune 500 or uh, PLC, um, you know, and, you, and you're a hundred million dollar company, then putting SAP in and replicating what they've got in, um, you know, the, the Fortune 500 company would, would just be death by a thousand cuts. It would be uh, completely unsustainable. So quite often we will find that we will be putting a new ERP and the surrounding technology ecosystem in from scratch, um, which, which again requires the processes to be developed, organizational model, um, you know, data model, data transformation, all of the, uh, an organizational change manager, all of that stuff needs to go alongside, um, you know, the implementation of that new tech. Right. So, so everything you just said sounds on the surface like what any organization would need to do when they go through a digital transformation, but obviously that's not true with you know what we're talking about here today are the nuances of what um you know how a pe owned or a, a high growth organization would would tackle a digital transformation differently what are some of the nuances of what you just described or anything else related to digital transformation at a high level that are unique or different when you're going through this through that process with a pe backed firm um well there are a number of um uh, dynamics that operate um, and it really depends on what type of um, uh, 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 deal is being done. Um, so if we take the example of um, the deal where um, we've got a spin co from a large division, um, what's usual is you'll get something called a transitional service arrangement, a TSA, and that'll be a contract between the new entity, the spin co, and the old parent to provide IT services for a period of time whilst the new co, the spin co gets its IT infrastructure and its ERPs and all of that in place. Now, quite often uh, those um, uh, TSAs uh, have traditionally been put in place for 12 months and 12 months is just not enough time to start from scratch and get an ERP up and running, which is why um, a lot of the ERPs that have been put into spin codes are such a total and utter complete disaster. Um, and so I've been working certainly with our clients um, to make sure that um, there is uh, a longer window, typically 18 to 24 months, to get the ERP in 
uh, and to get the data transferred. But there are a load of other gotchas like um, uh, in one contract, um, they, the, um, the, the parent company thought that what they'd agreed was to only transfer all of the data to the SPINCO once. Um, and that's obviously useless because you need to analyze the data, but you need the data at nearest possible go live. Um, and so having it just once was bonkers and it couldn't be done. So um, if you get in early um, and you're getting in on the due diligence side, you can influence where the lawyers are going with this uh, and get much better terms. If you come in too late after the deal's already done and the lawyers have already walked away, um, then you end up usually with a whole pile of problems that you end up having to try and unpick uh, and solve as you go. So those are the those are the typical kind of nuances that are specific to private equity. Now I've been talking a lot about spincos, but also the, there's the other kind of private equity, which is where they're funding startups. Um, and we get uh, in London particularly, we've been funding a huge volume of tech startups over the past two years. Um, and what we're seeing now is an increase in the number of tech startups that are outgrowing their instances of zero and spreadsheets and now needing more sophisticated ERP. So that's also driving change in the marketplace. Um, and so we've now got kind of two angles on this. Um, you know, one is the more traditional um, spin, spin, uh, spin or spin co or spin merge um, or uh, clone and go. Whereas um, the, the the ones that we're seeing more of just recently are, are the tech firms that are starting to outgrow the the QuickBooks and the Zero that they put in place when they started. All right, thanks, Stuart. This is good stuff. I'll be back with more questions when we return for Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Stuart Robb talking about private equity and high growth organizations and how they tackle digital transformations different from other types of organizations. So let's jump right back into the conversation. So when we think back to your opening response to what a PE firm does and what they're trying to accomplish, um, it sounds like a lot of what they're trying to do is grow. They want to grow the company, increase value, scale the company. Um, how can PE-backed firms leverage a digital transformation in general to, to help scale the company? Do you have, uh, do you have some examples of functions sure. or technologies that might help enable that sort of scalability that the PE firms are often looking for? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I mean, I, probably the, the thing that we haven't mentioned, which probably is useful, is that the PEs almost always have an exit timescale. 
So they will use, usually it's about five years. Sometimes it's a bit longer. Sometimes it's a bit shorter. But they want to make the investment, hold the asset for five years, having realized a certain level of profitability from the company that they're holding and then sell it on. That could be to another private equity firm or it could be back to the market, it might be to list it or it might be to a division of another company. But that's basically what their what their aim is. Um, and therefore, their time horizon tends to be quite narrow. Um, so um, some of the things that we tend to um, try and do, uh, most organizations that we go into, whether they're spin codes or they are tech, tech startups, um, tend to have um, appallingly poor operational reporting. Um, and so one of the areas that we focus on uh, in digital transformation is trying to understand what the key drivers of the business are and actually drive reporting um, that, uh, that, that will draw out um, what's happening with those key drivers and whether they are trending positively or negatively. Um, so BI takes quite a high prominence in um, in what we in what we try to do with um, with these organisations, um, more generally, um, uh, as I said, I mean, if if you're coming out of a large company and you're creating a small company, then there's going to be very much a large company mentality, um, and so you know, well, we get this report from SAP. And I, I will, you know, we, our team will typically go, well, what do you use the report for? And, oh, oh um, well, I don't know who uses it, but we get it, so we still need it. And I'm like, well, why? Um, I said, well, because that's what SAP gives us. And, you know, they can't even tell you who the audience is for the report, let alone what it's for or how it's created. And so um, there's a certain mindset in those kind of organizations you have to overcome, which is you cannot do things the way you did them because the way you did them was for a multi-billion dollar company and you're not a multi-billion dollar company you have much flatter structures um, and you need much more process efficiency so a lot of the time um, we're trying to redevelop processes um, to cut a lot of the wastage that they would have had when they had their existing um, large company processes um, for the tech startups, the problem's different. Of course, a lot of them don't have any processes, or at least they don't have any processes that they would acknowledge as processes. And a lot of things are done on spreadsheets. So um, getting them to, out of the spreadsheet mentality and into um, a more structured way of doing things. Um, for example, there's quite a big company, actually, um, uh, that was one of our clients um, that, um, that had a huge inventory stock. Um, and they couldn't tell us what their stock turn was, um, I, how long a piece of stock was sitting in inventory before it had actually sold. And so they're carrying all this inventory on their balance sheet. Uh, they can't even tell us what the stock turn is. So they're obviously they're manufacturing at 100% capacity to put stuff into stock. Uh, and their warehouses are getting fuller and fuller. And they don't know what the stock turn is. So those are the typical kind of things that we will walk into. And that's the right place to walk in. Because if you say we need a new ERP and we want to do NetSuite, that is the wrong answer. Because you, there's no business problem sat behind there. They've just seen the sales brochure or they've watched it on YouTube. And they've gone, that's that's good. That's what we need. Um, and, and you, you know, we we if we get the right PE backing we get to go in earlier and try and think about the problem statement um ra rather than just trying to you know replace a bit of technology with something else yeah 
yeah, be a little bit more deliberate and focused in how, how you use technology or even if you use technology, you know, sometimes it's not just a technology problem or it's, you know, other problems. Yeah. And, and, you know, to set up an infrastructure, um, from scratch is a lot of money. I mean, it, it will be a significant chunk of money out of the, um, the transitional budget that, um, that the PE will have set aside. Um, and so you're absolutely right to say that not every problem, you know, not every problem is a nail that needs to be solved by a hammer. Um, you know, and, and so having some different tools, um, like, you know, if their particular problem is um, high, high volume of invoices and poor, uh, poor day sales outstanding, then actually a piece of focus technology like um, Remilia or um, um, I was going to say uh, Blackline, who just took over Remilia, of course, um, or High Radius or uh, Carivo, one of those products is going to be much more effective for them um, than putting in a whole new ERP, which probably isn't going to do a great deal more for them than the ERP they've already got. Right. Yeah. Now we, we have a question that's uh, semi-related to what you were talking about a moment ago, um, related to both ERP and, and reporting um, in general. But um, I'll start with the first question. This is from uh, Sam Graham on Crowdcast. Uh, welcome back to the to the live stream, Sam. Uh, Sam's a regular uh, guest on the show or a, a attendee of the show. Um, but the question he has is, can a company be successful and sustainable without a good ERP system? That's the first part. And then I want to get to the second question as well. <laughs> reporting. Uh, um... It can be good and sustainable, but it can't be efficient and it can't maximize its return on investment to its shareholders. Um, and this goes back to something I said earlier. Um, technology isn't always the answer to everything. So one of our clients is a publishing firm, it's a multinational publishing firm. And um, it has, um, and uh, we've done a finance transformation for them and it has a, a an ERP and it's fairly old. Um, but it does what it says on the tin, right? It produces the accounts, it um, handles um, uh, AP and AR, but it doesn't do it very well. And uh, it doesn't handle reconciliations really very well at all. So again, in, in line with the, what I was suggesting about that other company, um, we ran a project for them to put high radius in to improve the accounts receivable. Uh, we ran a project to put Proactis in to improve the the accounts payable. Um, we put in black line to improve the reconciliation and the um, uh, and the period enclosed process. Um, and uh, we've done we did a lot with them with Power BI um, on reporting um, and getting much more towards driver based rolling forecasting um, uh, rather than the traditional you know static annualized reports that says we did this this month last year and we're doing that this month this year what does that tell us well actually it doesn't tell you very much at all to be honest with you um so the whole idea of zero budgeting they, they they've moved away from um and we put an epm tool we didn't put it in we we helped manage the process of getting an epm tool in for them to to enable them to do dbrf so um can a company be successful and sustain without a good ip elp yes um, because an ERP in of itself doesn't actually provide any business value. It's the improvements to DSO, improvements to DPO, um, higher accuracy in um, uh, in uh, invoice processing, um, better movement of data, better reporting, better um, you know this short shorter period enclosed, and all of those things. Those are the things that add value. The ERP 
could be the thing that facilitates that, but it could equally be a bunch of different products, as in this instance, which can just be bolted on the front um, without causing too much disruption and actually turned out to be cheaper. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You have to look at that cost benefit risk reward of a big, massive ERP system versus more focus point solutions like you're talking about with high radius and some of these other uh, EPM yeah. technologies. Yeah. Uh, second uh, follow up here from from Sam. And by the way, uh, if anyone else has questions that's watching this live, uh, we're, we're all open. We're all ears as it relates to that. So feel free to drop those questions you might have in the chat on whichever platform you're watching on here. Um, but the second part of Sam's question is if reporting is so bad for some of these organizations, is that a sign that management needs to be replaced or is that a technology issue <laughs> or is it both? Uh, um, what a very good question. Um, um, my uh, some some management don't know the art of the possible some managers are turnaround specialists and therefore they will go in and turn a company around but they are not long-term management and therefore won't be focused on long-term operational or strategic you know reporting um uh and everyone in who is a manager, I mean, the thing is, we tend to think of management and CXOs as people who aren't like us, and they are, and they have their strengths and they have their weaknesses. Um, now, I know that if I can get the DSO down, um, then I then I free up, net, uh, then I improve our net free cash position, and I improve our low cash point, and therefore I, if we have banking covenants, um, then I relieve pressure on banking covenants. And so there's whole, loads and loads and loads of happy upsides. Um, and the reason I know that is because I've done enough work with enough different organizations in finance and elsewhere to know that that is a good thing to do. And therefore, tunneling on DSO is a good thing. And investing in DSO and getting it lower is a good thing. Now, not every CXO, not every CEO, not every CIO will, will realize that. Um, and so if we take that as an illustrative example, um, you know, it needs someone really to to demonstrate the art of the possible. Now, in the particular organization that I talked about um, in terms of um, um, in terms of the, the stock turn, I mean, they're so profitable that nobody was caring. That's the problem mm -hmm. um, uh, that, that, that they were they were green with cash. Um, and so the fact that they were creating all this stock that they had no idea how long they were keeping or how long they were selling it, no one was asking the question. Um, and because no one was asking the question, there was no impetus or need um, to answer it. Now, as I said, we were bought in because their ERP was failing um, to that particular organization. And they'd just been taken over by a U.S. company. And so the U.S. company wanted to go and do a bit of a nose about and see what was going on um and this all came up i mean the whole they don't have a good handle on their supply chain um they are ordering uh materials stock that they that that, does, that doesn't align to what they're actually producing and so the material stock is going into warehouse for storage um, because they're completely not joined up because it's all done by spreadsheets, but it's not visible. And if you looked at their accounts, you'd never see it. It's only because we went in there and we watched the whole workflow. And we said, well, why have you bought 
25 million screws. And they said, well, we, we got them really, really, really cheap. And I said, well, yeah, but where are you going to put them? Oh, well, we'll stick them in that warehouse. Well, how's, how long is that going to, how much is that going to cost you? Oh, well, we pay for all our warehouses centrally. And I said, yes, but, you know, if I divide the total cost of warehouses by the amount of money it's going to cost you to store these screws and distribute them, um, to, you know, to the, to the manufacturing plant when they're required, how much is that? And they didn't know. And so it's that kind of stuff. It's only when someone comes in and starts, you know, asking a few, you know, insightful or incisive questions that you really start to understand whether or not whether the business is really getting good reporting and how it's managing it. Because if you manage it on a pure PL basis, the company is fantastically profitable. We, we you know, we're, we're making 28, 30% margin. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Everybody's getting their bonuses and, you know, going off to the Caribbean every year. But it doesn't mean the company is efficient. Yeah, the profits um, are hiding the warts in those cases. And yeah, and exactly. That's where, that's where a PE firm can come in and uncover those warts and say, okay, yeah, you're profitable. You're doing well, but there's a Here, lot of here's money. Here's another 13 points on your profit margin that you can get without doing much. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thanks, Stuart. This is good stuff. I'll be back with more questions when we return for Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Stuart Robb talking about private equity and high growth organizations and how they tackle digital transformations different from other types of organizations. So let's jump right back into the conversation. And I suspect a lot of companies, not, you know, not just PE owned companies, but, you know, more mature, larger organizations, smaller organizations, I imagine, uh, you know, whether the publicly traded, private, uh, public sector, private sector, whatever it is, uh, a lot of companies have that same problem. It's not yeah, just- I mean, as I said, you know, uh, companies are a set, set of individuals who are all thrust together to treat towards one theoretical common purpose. And the board of directors is no different. Um, and each board will have its strengths and weaknesses. Each CEO, CFO, CIO will have their own particular focus, their own particular war stories, and their own particular experience. Um, and that's not to say that um, I think that um, any um, organization is necessarily any better than any other. They're just different. And so, um, you know, the, the drivers that drive different businesses, you know, pretty much is down to how the people are rewarded, you know, in terms of, in terms of, uh, you know, how they behave. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you were talking earlier about, uh, the implementation, uh, what did you call it? The, the, uh, yeah. the, the exit time scale, you know, how long yeah. all the PE firm wants to get out basically. And yes. that tends to put a lot of pressure on the implementation timeline as well as the cost. So yeah. how do you, how do PE firms maybe start off by describing the, the tension that that creates, you know, the tension between being aggressive with time and cost, but 
also recognizing that there's a way to do it right. And if you are too aggressive on time and cost, that can actually diminish value. Uh, yeah. Maybe help us understand that dynamic and how, you know, how PE firms, PE backed firms can be better suited to navigate that. Uh, that trade-off. I, yeah. I mean, um, uh, you, you know, when, when I started dealing with PE firms um, and um, we kind of first started to engage with them, um, although I came, you know, with a lot of personal experience and credibility, um, I, I was seen as fairly low up the food chain. Um, and therefore, um, you know, if I was to say, uh, I, in fact, at the microfocus deal, um, I, they, they were trying to implement um, 385 interfaces from design to fully tested and implemented in 11 months. And I said, that's more than one a day. You cannot possibly do it at that speed. It was just going to be a total and utter, complete, total and utter, utter fiasco. Um, and it was. Um, I mean, uh, happily, I had I had long since bailed the sinking ship before it happened. Um, and they decided to run it out of Palo Alto, which was which was fine. And I um, just had a new family, so I didn't want to go to Palo Alto anyway. So, um, so that gave me a good excuse to go. Um, but yeah, you know that um, uh, that um, experience. You know, there was no way that I had sufficient clout or or. Um, excuse me, it's got a bit. Tight. There we go. Uh, no way I have got ahead of sufficient clout. Um, you know, to make to make the point and make it stick. I think um, what's what's happened now is because um, uh, I, I have you know more much more experience of private equity than I did then, um, and I have much more credibility because I have been dealing with you know quite a number of people in private equity, um, and I've kind of got to know how they think. It's been easier for me to make the case to say that you are not leaving yourself enough time and to pr produce some case studies where it's all gone horribly wrong microfocus being one of them um that says you, you know don't do this um and by and large after a bit of horse trading um they they accept my decision because actually um the cost of the tsa although it can be significant is a hell of a lot cheaper than a complete balls up of an erp and then having to start again from scratch or try and use a hobbled system for nine months while you try and fix all the problems. Um, and that case is fairly easy to make. And as I said, um, uh, uh, we presented now to a couple of private equity firms, you know, just on the subject of, um, you know, get involved at the due diligence stage. Don't wait until the deal's closed to understand what you're getting yourself into. Don't listen to the tier one firms like EY or PwC because they'll just tell you what you want to hear because they ain't going to be around when it comes to actually implementing it. Um, so, um, you know, that message has got some traction um, and we're going to continue to try to pursue that in the market um, to make sure that message is heard louder. But it's like all things, it's more haste, less speed, right? You know, if you spend, you know, uh, four or five days looking at an ERP and say, does it meet our business needs? then you are running a significantly higher risk than if you spend four or five weeks. And the temptation is to get in there, go, we used NetSuite last time, let's use NetSuite for this time, 
and it's a completely different business. One was a, a, a you know, a, um, a, a drinks manufacturer, and the other one is a medical device company. They're not the same, and so the requirements are going to be quite significantly different. Um, one needs recipe management. The other one needs material, uh, you know, um, 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 uh, FDA regulatory approval. They're not at all the same. So don't, don't assume that just because NetSuite worked over here, it's going to work over here. But there is a lot of that temptation. And so you have to actually spend the time with the partner who is running the deal to actually walk them through why they're about to make a horrible cock up. Right. Yeah. And it, it you actually as you were talking, that reminded me of a, a podcast interview we had on this show back in episode, uh, is either episode two or three is one of the very early episodes of, of Transformation Ground Control. And uh, we had the CFO of Jane's Defense Weekly. Uh, yeah, on James it. Hayward. Yeah, yeah James Hayward. Yeah, and it was a really good discussion. Awesome interview. If you, if you haven't, uh, those of you listening, if you haven't had a chance, uh, go back and listen to either episode. I think it's episode, it's either two or three. Of transformation ground control and james hayward uh, is a really good guest because he was the cfo and one of the things he talked about in that interview i still remember very clearly he was talking about how um you know they were in a, a, a pe type situation a high growth situation and they were on an aggressive timeline where they i think they had either it was around 12 months they had about 12 months yeah. to to do the full well, it, originally it was six and i petitioned very very hard to to just to get it pushed out to to um to uh, a year right um, uh, because they said they wanted in in six months and i said it's just not possible having for a company that size yeah yeah and he, yeah. he talked about though um the importance of you know to go at that speed even even 12 months that's that's aggressive it's it's doable six months is i agree not doable but yeah. since this is a client of ours and you you are closely with him and with that organization Maybe you could help us understand in that case study or that example, he talked about how they spent uh, about half the time uh, on planning and just getting prepared for the implementation, but the, yeah. they spent a, a very high. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, 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 yes. So that's exactly right. Um, um, I mean, that, so, so to give you a bit of background, they were spun out of um, IHS market, which is a multi-billion 15,000 person company and they're like 100 people um and so you know again the original assumption was well let's clone their sap instance and and run sap and i'm like you can't possibly run sap for a company with 100 people you'll need 100 people just to run sap it's just a non-starter um and the p the, the sap that they had was very old and out of date anyway and it would have just been a, a horrible nightmare um so um we um we short-circuited a bit because i'd already done some work for another client um about functional fit for um uh, netsuite in publishing um so i was fortunate enough to have already got a reasonably good understanding of whether netsuite would work or not um and the uh, the other thing was that I'd actually also um, found a systems integrator um, who I thought would be perfect to do the job. So I actually walked into that situation um, probably a lot further forward than some of the others where, you know, I've gone in and I've had to look and understand the business before I'm starting to try to work out what their um, direction and strategy should be. Um, that said, I mean, we did go in, we did do um, 
uh, we did do a, a number of workshops um, which which defined the operating model. We didn't worry about the technology, but you know, how many A people are we going to need? How many AR people are we going to need? Where should they be? How many people for tax? How how are we going to do FPNA? You know, we we started there, um, and what we did was they started building their um, their organisation and their processes and their um, policies and procedures whilst we were still looking at the technology and making sure that it would it would functionally um, functionally fit um, so we started off with the standard process taxonomy um, and we talked very at quite a very uh, quite a high level about how we thought it should work um, and then the place that we really had to deep dive was subscription revenue because their, theirs was a subscription business um, and at that time NetSuite didn't have a subscription billing module um, and we were a bit lucky because next week we're releasing a subscription mod billing module in the time scale that we were going to go live with this thing. Um, and we had to take a bit of a punt as to whether or not we believe this subscription module was actually going to work or not. Um, and ordinarily, I'd say never, ever take version one of a product. But in this instance, we didn't really have an awful lot of choice. Um, so... Um, so this parallel track of activity now bear in mind they didn't actually have any finance function at all there was no finance function inherited from ihs market they had to recruit them all um so they were recruiting people into the business that knew nothing about the business which in itself was difficult because the si wanted requirements and wanted to know how things should be set up and there was no one to ask um in addition we got a data dump from sap which was literally just literally a dump of data. Even the columns didn't mean anything. Um, and so um, there was a lot of time that we had to spend working out what that data was, how it all connected together um, uh, in terms of its referential integrity, um, what uh, data out of that dump we actually needed and what was basically just rubbish that, that we didn't need. Um, so yes, I mean about six months of planning. I think that's about right. I think actually we started in, um, we started in, well, the think the deal closed in January. I think we were on it um, just before um, we were we were we got involved in December um, on some of the due diligence stuff and the approach. Um, and I think we actually started um, coding the solution, effectively configuring Netsuite in uh, towards the end of May. Um, but by that time, everyone had been re become really ultra familiar with what was required. And so, you know, the data, the OCM, the building of the team, uh, tray, all of that was all able to happen pretty much simultaneously. Um, and we managed to get it over the line. It was not the easiest of things to get it over the line. Um, there was lots and lots of weekend working and lots of extended hours. So you know, was 12 months enough? Mm, uh, if we'd been doing an eight hour day, the answer would have been no. Um, the fact that we were doing sort of seven days a week on a two rotation shift, the answer was yes. Yeah, yeah. And I think that what's interesting about that whole case study or that example is that it, it runs counterintuitive to what our natural instincts are oftentimes. Our, our natural instincts are, I've got 12 months, I better start doing something now. I better I better get yeah. NetSuite in here. I'll start configuring it or whatever the technology is. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, we didn't even have a chart of accounts when we started. Um, and I said, you know, get it wrong now. It will be wrong forever. So yeah. think, think, it, think it through really carefully. 
Um, uh, and I think, mean, you know, that I, I think that, that the, the thing is, James and I had worked together on a number of other engagements before. I've known James for years because he knew the way I worked and because he understood the process that I went through. He was much more willing to carry the method and the thinking through than I think someone who hadn't experienced the sort of third stage way of doing it, whose natural reaction is get the product in, start configuring it straight away. And then, of course, the wheels start to come off it in three or four months because everyone's trying to hack at it without having really thought through what they wanted to do or how it's going to work. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a great point. I mean, it's uh, it's almost like you need to take a step back to be able to take two steps forward. And, and yeah. you're actually, you know, one of the comments he made in that interview too, by the way, was that it's, it's a lot more, um, it, it, he was actually able to implement a lot faster because he took that time up front. So yeah, overall, it, he felt like it was a faster deployment. It, it's always the same. And I, I keep saying it over and over again to every client, more haste, less speed. And in fact, we have a med device client at the moment who um, we pitched at um, about six months ago. And we said, this is the methodology that we go through. We look at operating model. We do this, this, and this, and this. And they decided not to go with us. They went with a, um, another organization. Um, and we got contacted by them um, a couple of months ago um, to say they'd kind of got a bit stuck and they needed a bit of um, you know, advice and guidance. And I said, fine, where have you got to? Um, and they said, we've got to this story we, we you know we're talking to to, to vet, uh, tool suppliers and we're shocked when i said well we've got another customer who is also in med devices who started a month later than you and we've we, we're basically down to the final selection mm. uh, and it was all because we were much better prepared um or so that customer was much better prepared and so we've been now helping this customer um you know uh get um themselves into a position where they've got all of the information they need um in order to be able to go out to tender um but it, it is preparation uh there's a there's an odd saying um poor preparation leads to uh oh god what is it poor, poor planning leads to piss poor performance i think it is apologies for the vernacular but um it's some old army saying but it's absolutely true I mean, they didn't plan. They didn't do D-Day by going, "Oh, quick! We need to invade France. Let's get a few boats together, throw some soldiers in it, and sail across to France." The, um, if anyone's ever had the pleasure, which I have, of looking at the D-Day plans, um, that they planned absolutely everything. I mean, the plans go into tens of thousands of pages. Um, they're available online on the. Um, on the uh, Imperial War Museum website, I think it is. Um, but yeah, I mean, really, 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 really long planning cycle. Two years that took. Thousands of elements in that plan. Yeah, and it, in with that two-year lead time, that probably was faster than if they would have just gone in and done what you Well, said. I think if they'd gone in and they didn't have the Mulberry ports and they didn't know where, what they were landing on, whether it was hard or soft sand and, and, and a million other things, they didn't know what they were facing in terms of opposition. Um, they would have lasted five minutes, which is basically what happened a few years earlier at Dunkirk. Right. Not wishing to turn this into a, uh, sorry, not Dunkirk, at, at, uh, I think it was at Calais they tried to um, invade. Can't remember now. Not trying to turn this into a history lesson, apologies. Especially as we're showing my sudden weakness in history as I'm being put on the spot for it. <laughs> Well, I, that's actually interesting. I didn't know you could go read those plans, so I, I might go actually look that up. Yeah, no, they are, they are public domain. 
Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Stuart. This is good stuff. I'll be back with more questions when we return for Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Stuart Robb talking about private equity and high growth organizations and how they tackle digital transformations different from other types of organizations. So let's jump right back into the conversation. So I think you may have already, uh, you, I think you've already uncovered one thing or one potential response to this question already, but um, it's about the blind spots that PE firms have or some of the risks or pitfalls that PE backed firms are more likely to fall into. And I think we've, we've touched on one, which is that whole the time pressure and cutting too many corners or cutting the wrong corners as part of that time pressure can be one common challenge or pitfall. What are some of yeah. the other pitfalls that you see that are, that are more common or unique to PE backed firms? Um, transformation. It's very interesting. Um, uh, I mean, every PE firm has a slightly different dynamic. Um, one of the, one of the more interesting aspects I've found is that because the PE firms tend to be much more active in the board, um, there's a much finer line between what a P firm wants to happen in terms of directing a company what they want and the executive directors who are actually accountable for it. Um, so in good corporate governance, the excuse me, in good corporate governance, why this keeps going out of focus, in good corporate governance, um, it would ordinarily be the um the the executives that are making the final say and carrying the final can um but in pe backed companies i found that the pe um representatives on the board um tend to be much more uh or can be much more directive which can lead to a i don't know why this isn't working apologies sorry it's got that that indie movie feel to it when you're out of focus yeah, okay I'll give up. Um, but yeah, they, they're, they're much more directive. Um, uh, and that can lead to you know some conflicts of opinion about how, what should happen and how it should be done between the board and the PE firm. Um, and so um, when we're dealing with PE particularly, we have to be mindful that it's not only the PE firm that we're reporting to, we're also reporting to the company um for whom is actually the work is being done and so we have to have an equally good relationship with the cxos and the, the executive suite as we do as the pe contacts um you know and take all views into account now ordinarily we wouldn't care really who was on the board in a normal company we would just 
talk to the CFO or the CXO or CIO, CEO, whoever it was, and then we'd get on with it. Um, but there's, so there's a slightly different dynamic. And then if you don't understand that dynamic, you can get yourself into, you know, quite a lot of hot water. Yeah. Now, now what about the, uh, the, the rapid pace of change? You, you sort of alluded to the, uh, what was the example you gave about, um, you know, companies that just don't have reporting or visibility into their inventory. You were talking about the yeah. inventory stockpiling. Yeah. And mm. imposing some sort of massive change, any sort of massive change and fast change to an organization creates a lot of change management pressure and that sort of thing. Well, um, PE firms, I mean, PE firms in particular are going to impose change anyway. I mean, as I said, in some organizations, a finance function doesn't exist. You have to build one from scratch. Um, and creating a cohesive organization that's going to work in harmony, knowing all what they're doing and what the company is doing and having all of the ironed out processes and procedures in six months, you know, it's a massive undertaking. I mean, the change management issues you have there are much more significant than you would have in a normal change program, where it's broadly speaking, the people are going to remain largely, largely the same. Um, you know, again, the the board or the executive board that comes together are probably all new. Half of them are going to be interim contractors anyway. You know, interim CIO, interim CFO are going to be gone in six months. Um, and then you have the opposite problem, which is you get the old timers who've all been in the large PLC or the large Fortune 100 company for the last 25 years. And now they've been thrust into this little tiny firm. And all of a sudden, rather than have this insulation of management around them, who are basically able to take the decision and take all the pressure off them, they suddenly find themselves being the CFO. And now they have to take the decision. They have to know what they're doing. They don't have anyone to rely on. And so, again, you have this um, leadership vacuum because they, they've never been in a position where they've had the ultimate accountability or the ultimate responsibility. And you often find they, they become quite timid at taking decisions because they just have never been in a position where it's all rested on their shoulders. Um, and so what we try and do, um, uh, you know, is, is to coax and to coach. Um, and we don't, you know, we don't specifically call it that. And, and, and it depends who you're dealing with. I mean, um, you know, I, I tend to find that the same names keep coming up. You mentioned James Hayward, um, and he keeps coming up in different PE ventures that I get involved in because he's a specialist um, turnaround and um, private equity CFO was put in to manage that process. And the same with Darren Price is the ex, um, uh, I think he was the ex CIO of Royal Sun Alliance, but now he does um, mostly PE and turnaround work. And so um, you tend to find the same names. And if you're working with those names over and over again, it becomes quite easy. But if you're working with a set of new names, you know, that have come from, you know, the likes of large PLC, um, and they don't know what they're doing, then you've, you, you've really got to hold their hand quite a lot um, and get their trust um, before you really start, you know, getting them to start, helping them to start make the really difficult decisions. And it's trust. It's all about any, anything to do with consulting, um, as, as, as I'm sure you know, it, but, but maybe not everybody on the call knows, is all about establishing a level of trust. If the client trusts you and they trust the advice you're giving them and that advice is well-reasoned, then the, good, the, the, the higher chances that they'll go with the advice you're giving them. If they don't trust you or they're getting multiple different voices giving them conflicting information, that's when these decisions become difficult. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And, and how are, what are some of the ways that you've seen organizations deal with that? You know, that rapid pace of change, that that massive disruption. You know, you look at a Fortune 500 or Fortune 100 company that has three or four or five years to go through their entire transformation. Um, these PE-backed firms don't have that luxury. They're not usually in it for that long and they don't have the patience to do that. So so the change is faster. It's more dramatic oftentimes because for some um, reason. Funnily enough, actually, um, the general um, the general modus operandi of a P firm is to change as little as possible. Um, uh, I mean, they 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 suffer from a certain amount of change inertia, um, and um, you know, most mostly that's because um, they 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 themselves haven't necessarily uncovered what unrealized uh, profits are by changing the organization. Um, and so if, a, if they've taken over a firm, you know, mid-sized SME firm that's running reasonably well in their eyes, they'll probably leave it alone. Um, and it's only when some critical tipping point happens, um, for example, um, uh, that tipping point could be... Um, um, uh, uh, you, you, you know, the, the, the ERP going out to support or running out of capacity, will they actually think about, um, you know, changing um, the, the, their technology platform, which will then tentacle through the organization and start to draw out changes that are required elsewhere? Um, so it doesn't necessarily follow that every PE firm goes in there champing at the bit to change everything. In fact, usually it's quite the opposite. They want to change as little as possible. But more often than not, they will be forced into change purely by virtue of the fact that they're going to be taking the company into a different structure and therefore the underlying um, operational environment will have to change with it. Right. Yeah. So uh, so we have a, uh, a white paper that you ac actually authored. And it's uh, the private yeah. equity, uh, it's a magnum opus, right? It's a, it's a, it is an epic document that I encourage everyone listening to download, and I'll include a link to that in the the description field below. But yeah. what, uh, what are some of the? I know you can't read that to us here in the time we have, which have just a couple of minutes left. But as a kind of a closing question, you know, what are a couple of highlights that may have been covered in that in that uh, playbook that we might, you know, take away or summarize as far as. Uh, you know, just other things we haven't covered. That yeah, sure. I, I, um, I mean, um, I've talked a lot about spincos, um, and there are other um, PE models. Um, I mentioned, I think, very briefly, clone and goes um, and spin merges. Um, so the um, uh, sort of the document talks about um, some of those uh, differences um, and what they mean and how um, you might look at those. The other thing the document explores as well. Um, is how to assess, it's certainly in due diligence, um, how good a acquisition target is in terms of its infrastructure and its ability to provide reporting and uh, gives you a reasonably good um, understanding of um, uh, you, what you're going to be facing into when you actually get this company on your, you know, on your books. Mm -hmm. um, we talk um, a little bit as well about... Um, uh, the um, not, not uh, the, how to identify um, through the architecture any architecture diagrams that they give you in the due diligence. You can infer quite a lot in terms of history, um, in terms of where that architecture has come from, 
Um, so again, there's 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 stuff in the booklet that will give you ways of being able to infer information that you might not get straight from the um, from the uh, from the seller um, or the parent company when you're going through PE. So it's got um, lots of lots of information, lots of data um, uh, that you can use to kind of assess um, not only what you're looking at in terms of uh, pre-due diligence acquisition, but what you should do with um, the acquisition once it's into post-merger. Right. We got yeah. another question, by the way, from Sam. Which... Yeah, yeah, it's actually a good question. Uh, are, are you sometimes brought in because a company wants a scapegoat rather than a solution? Um, um, wrong opinion we, on that, we, but curious what you think. We, we don't we don't do scapegoating in third stage. Um, our, our contractual terms and conditions mean that we'll not probably be scapegoated for anything. Um, I mean, just to just to be clear on that, I mean, I'm being obviously slightly facile, but um, we advise, we don't decide. Yeah, we're like the civil service. You know, the minister decides, the civil servants don't decide. So if a board decides on to do on a course of action, then we accept their decision, even if we don't necessarily completely agree with it. Um, uh, but it's their decision and it's theirs to live with. We are only the advisors. Um, and if it's the wrong decision, well, then, you know, um, that there is a collective board responsibility that they have to face into. Um, I would like to say, um, and I think I can say in almost all cases, um, that all of the advice that we have given has been best advice that we felt would be the best for the company's concern. Not all of the decisions that the organizations have taken have followed that advice. And some of those decisions have proven to be fine, but that doesn't necessarily invalidate the advice that we gave. And some of them have proven not to be fine. And, you know, we don't really want to put up a banner that you can see from Mars saying, I told you so, um, but we, we do resist doing that. Um, um, but it's actually quite, I don't think there has been an instance where we have recommended a course of action which has turned disastrously wrong. Um, and that's because actually it's quite difficult to make a wrong decision. It's about how you implement it and whether you have the structure and the management actually to make it work. I mean, it, you know, it's never come across a situation where we said, yes, we think NetSuite's the right solution for you or IN4M3 is the right solution for you. And it's turned out to be total pants. Um, usually it's simply because the implementation has just not been handled effectively. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say the bigger challenge that we have is that, uh, we get hired to tell or the clients expect us at times to tell them what they want to hear, not necessarily what they, what they need to hear. Yeah. 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 Well, if you want to, if you want a, um, if you want a, uh, consultancy to come and tell you what you want to hear, as opposed to what you need to hear, you can go and buy a parrot because they're a lot cheaper. Right. That's a, that's a great point. Save a lot of money and time. All right. Thanks, Stuart. Thanks for being here today. Really appreciate having you on the show as always. And as always, you've also given us a lot to think about and a couple of things to debrief on and, and unpack a bit more. So when we come back from a quick break, Kyler and I are going to talk about uh, some of the lessons that we talked about and some of the follow-up items we have. So we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations.
With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. We had just had a great conversation there with Stuart. Um, Kyler, what were your thoughts? I'm always entertained and I always get a lot of really good information, more importantly, out of the conversations with Stuart. But what were you, what, what were some of your takeaways or thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, lots to unpack here, um, for sure. I, I think there's a, a lot of really good best practices. I kind of wanted to start from the beginning and get a better understanding from you know, from you guys that have worked with either mergers and acquisitions or private equity firms or capital raising companies, those types of things. How do you define a future state in, in knowing that that's such an important piece, as we talked about, of the overall puzzle? If you're buying a company, do you know immediately if you're going to sell it? Or um, what does that look like as far as understanding the overall strategy first before thinking about changes to technologies? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's all about business value and, and where are we going to get the business value? Sometimes it's out of efficiency gains and uh, having a common platform for operations or whatever the case may be. Other times it's just being able to be more nimble or respond more quickly or other cases it might be you know, building a better product or service, hiring better people, what it, there's probably some combination of all the above and other stuff we haven't even mentioned. But I think the key is to understand what that strategy is before you start worrying about technology, because it's uh, pretty easy to end up going down a bunch of rabbit holes that aren't going to deliver that business value. And the, and the good thing with working with private equity uh, clients that, that I love, do, I love doing this work for companies that are owned by private equity is because they have such a clear, they're much more likely to have a clear vision of what kind of tangible business value they want to get out of digital transformation. So they don't mess around with all the bells and whistles and expensive stuff that doesn't deliver business value. Whereas other organizations that aren't, they don't have that sort of black and white view of the world of, you know, is there an ROI there or not, which I'm oversimplifying, but that's how, that's how a lot of these, these organizations think. Uh, but with PE firms, they, they are looking at, you know, is it, is it delivering value or not? So just being able to be focused in that way, I think is, is very helpful and in, in that focus starts with that clear strategy and vision of what it is you want to get out of the transformation. Gotcha. I mean, that makes a lot of sense um, in that they do have a roadmap that probably they did a lot of prior research on before actually acquiring the company. Um, and then Stuart talked about kind of decentralization when it comes to systems versus centralization and what that looks like from budget parameters and things like that. And I wondered if I could ask about change management, because it seems like when versus some say we talked about small business owners or mid-sized business owners or entrepreneurs that have much more of an emotional connection, it seems like the private equity side can kind of ignore change. And that might lead to some operational disruption or maybe an effect on ROI. Is that something you've seen them typically consider or not so much? 
Yeah, I, well, I agree with the first part of what you said, which is they, they tend to not value change management as much. And that is probably the hardest part, in my opinion, of being a consultant to private equity-owned firms. And part of the reason for that, though, is, isn't necessarily just their fault in that they don't see the value or it's not quite as tangible or cut and dry as some of the other aspects of change, like process improvements or technology improvements, things of that nature. Uh, but a big part of it is because uh, as change practitioners, the industry has not clearly defined the, the business value of change management. It's, it's, it's comes across oftentimes as, well, we're going to create awareness and we're going to uh, have a communications plan and this and that. And, and when PE firms and myself, I, I think this way too, when I hear other people oftentimes talk about change management, it just sounds like it's just a bunch of fluff. So I think being able to integrate change management into more tangible process improvements and um, tangible business optimization, benefits optimization, and uh, Lean Six Sigma. I love I love hiring consultants that are experts in change management, but they also have a Lean Six Sigma background. I, I love that combo because it sort of connects the dots between the soft, fuzzy stuff with the tangible, measurable business value. So it's just as much a problem with the consulting industry, I would say, as it is with PE firms. You know, PE firms just don't mess around with stuff that doesn't deliver business value. And if they don't think it does, they're, they're even if it's to their own, uh, to their own fault, they're, they're not going to invest in it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, you can admire their all business type of attitude when it comes to those, those things is probably why they're a private equity firm. Right. Um, and they've, they've done really well in, in that. So I wondered if you could help us kind of identify the top three tactics or strategies that businesses that might not be in the private equity sphere that could activate to make sure their digital transformation is successful. Yeah. And, and by successful, I'll, I'll assume that you mean, you know, one that delivers business value at a yes. reasonable cost that doesn't spiral out of control. Um, so I'd say, you know, the more just kind of going with that theme of tangible business value and, and, uh, you know, focusing on things that are measurable in, in value. You know, I'd say, you know, first of all, let me back up and say, first of all, I think just having a clear strategy and making sure that your overall transformation strategy and plan is aligned with your company strategy and plan, that is a key part. And it sounds simple, but it's, it's I'd say, an overwhelming majority of the time, companies are misaligned. You know, they've got a digital transformation strategy over here on the side, but here's our business strategy over here. And there's oftentimes disconnect, uh, especially when you get down to the tactical levels of how we're going to execute that transformation and what it means to the organization. So that's first and foremost. Second of all, um, what I was starting to say a second ago before I cut myself off was uh, it was translating the soft stuff into as measurable stuff as you can. So if you can tie everything back to operational improvements that deliver some sort of business benefit, then do more of that and do less of the stuff that you can't build a business case for, um, which, which sort of leads to the third thing, which is have a, have a clear business case um, and use that business case, not as just a way to justify an investment, but to hold yourselves accountable and your team accountable so that you actually get that ROI that you're expecting to get. Yeah, absolutely. And if I could add a fourth, I would say the thing I admire about the PE business is they, they don't have any ego in hiring consultants, you know, that to them is seen as a huge benefit to have that expertise to come in, assess, make recommendations for them. That's that's part of their best practices. And I think a lot of other companies may think, oh, well, it's my company. You know, I should know what what I need. Well, there, there's no shame in, in outsourcing 
for things that you might not be an expert at, you know, um, yeah. as we talked about in our, I think I was talking to um, Braden on our, our digital stratosphere podcast is I probably could build a house, but would I want to? Absolutely not, right. you know, right. type of thing. Um, so, so same type of approach with PE firms that I feel like our, our whole community could benefit from. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of value there. A lot of lessons to be learned for sure. And you, you can always, you know, temper some of those lessons, you know, knowing that there's a, oftentimes a shorter term focus with PE firms. Whereas, you know, if you're part of an organization that's not PE owned, or especially if you're privately held and you're on a, you know, you're a mature established company, chances are you might be thinking of things a little bit longer term, longer term on the horizon than a, than a stereotypical PE firm who are usually looking, you know, three to five years out. And then they want to flip it, sell it, you know, create as much value as they can, sell it at a higher price than they paid and, and make money off it. Whereas you as an executive might be thinking 10, 20 years down the road. So you do have to temper it a bit, but I think there's a healthy dose of PE type of thinking that we can inject to any digital transformation. Right, right. Um, and then Stuart does have a due diligence private equity playbook too on our website for any listeners um, and we can link it below but it's available for download and it's, it's really well done and detailed if you're looking for more information on this topic. Yeah. Good point. Absolutely. Well, well, thanks for that. That's a, that's a good uh, debrief and, and follow up on some of the points he made and uh, yeah, be sure to check out that, that white paper and also uh, all the other plethora of resources that we offer out on our social media platforms and on our website. So check us out on LinkedIn, um, YouTube, obviously um, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, any of those platforms, you can find us pretty much anywhere. We're not on Snapchat and, you know, we're not on MySpace, for example, you know, I know that's pretty hot right now with all the kids, but uh, we're not on, we're not on uh, all the platforms, but all the major ones for sure. So uh, thanks for another great episode, Kyler. Appreciate everything you did to get us ready for this and uh, look forward to seeing you and uh, the guests who thank you audience for joining as well. Look forward to seeing you next week, uh, every Wednesday, new episodes. Be sure to check out past episodes. If you've missed any of the first 37 episodes. Uh, be sure to go back and check it out. There's a lot of good ones you may have missed that uh, you may want to selectively listen through. So, uh, and I'll, as always, we're open to ideas. If you've got suggestions on topics or ways to make the show better, we'd love to hear your feedback. So thanks very much for joining. I hope you all have a great week and we will see you all soon. Take care.